Hello, welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, co-worker, friend, movie enemy. Steve, how are you? I think we can be enemies and still be friends. Isn't that great? Yeah, pretty much. Until the day I, I knife you. Yeah, yeah. Right? And not in the back. Until then. Yeah, not in the Up back. Until then, pretty, I'm gonna, pretty... I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in for a handshake with uh-huh. the right hand. Knife's gonna cut across. <laughs> right? Did you ever see right Marathon Man? Did you ever see Marathon no, Man? No, I haven't. Is it good? It is. It's it's very taut. You you say Lawrence Olivier, but really you mean Dustin Hoffman. Like I know Olivier's in it, but no. It's... But you you mentioned the knife. You know, yeah, something knife. He's got this device in the movie Lawrence mm-hmm. Olivier, a very lethal knife that comes. It's great. It's. Really I started bold. watching that movie, and I don't know. I just it bored me. It didn't it didn't stick with me. It takes a while to get into it because nothing really happens until Roy Scheider gets back from Europe. Then things start to cook, and it, it has the most horrifying, horrifying dental scene <laughs> in movie history. Are they Nazis in that movie, or am I just thinking Boys from Brazil? No, uh, yeah, uh, in this, in, in in Marathon Man, Lawrence Olivier is a Nazi in Boys from Brazil. He is a Nazi hunter. Oh, he did it twice. Yes. <laughs> uh, within two years, too. It's funny how only like the seventies was the last decade in which you could make movies about Nazis in hiding. Yes. You know, now now if I met a Nazi in hiding, I wouldn't be scared at all. You know, he'd probably need help to the bathroom. All right. So let's talk about today's episode. Today's episode's topic is actors who directed movies for the first time. So we're talking about really good movies directed by an actor in their directing debut. So we're not talking about, I don't know, uh, Mel Gibson doing Passion of the Christ, which I think, by the way, was only his second movie, right? Uh, Third. After The Man With No Face and Braveheart. Oh, I didn't see The Man With No Face. Nobody did. Not to be <laughs> confused with Forever Young, in which he had a scarred up face. That is, yeah, um, they're very similar. I, I lose track. And, and the, uh, the Man With No Face is dismissed, uh, probably. I, I've never seen it, so I can't say. It, it seems like rightly so, based on its reputation, but I couldn't say for sure. So, you know, when we were talking about doing this, um, this episode, it was hard, uh, you know, First of all, Orson Welles was out, right? Orson Welles was out for a number of reasons, yeah. uh, primarily because Citizen Kane is not a hidden gem. That's right? a biggie. Everyone's heard about it. <laughs> However, I think you picked a movie pretty darn close in quality and innovation to Citizen Kane. Yeah, absolutely. And you know it, what? Here's a, here's a connection between the two. Yeah. Uh, both had the same... No. Um... They don't have the both have the same cinematographer. Yeah. But for Orson Welles' second movie, he used the same cinematographer as Night of the Hunter, and you could argue that uh, his second movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, is better shot than Orson Welles. So uh, than Citizen Kane. So here's my question: Do we like it when actors make good directors, or does it pain us? <laughs> like, how dare you have so much talent? Yeah. Yeah, a little, a little. Yeah, now, that kind of sucks. Let me ask you another question. All right. Um. Is it better when Stanley Tucci and Charles Lawton make for good directors rather than Mel Gibson? And I'm just going to throw his name out, even if you don't think he's a good director, uh, George Clooney. Are oh, we, George Clooney or Robert Redford. Yeah. Or, Kev, right. or Kevin Are we uh, Are we less pained when it's guys like Stanley Tucci and Charles Lawton? Absolutely less pain. Absolutely. All right. So we're on board. As long as you're a character actor of some sort, <laughs> uh, it's totally fine to be a great director. However, I will point out, uh, Stanley Tucci, pretty handsome in the movie I selected. I was surprised at how handsome he was. Now, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that he's wearing a rug? It's a good rug. 
It's a good. I was wondering in the movie if it was a rug. It it's, is a good rug. It's a good rug, but also mm. he's in good shape in that movie. Yes, he is. Oh, yeah. I noticed. Absolutely. I was, like, I was like, he's been working out for this movie. All right. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, we are. Let's get into the first movie because there's a lot to talk about. The first movie, Steve, was your pick. I had seen it before, but it had been a long time. And I just want to say one thing before I say the name. We do our little trailer bit. Um, my dad, this movie's got a lot of recognition as years have passed. It's now officially kind of like a classic film. Like yeah. It's a hidden gem only in the sense that if you only casually follow movies, you may not have heard about it. But my dad told me to watch this movie years ago, and my dad has a pretty good track record for liking movies before they are rediscovered. So I just want to give a shout out to Richard Levine here, uh, because he was on top of Night of the Hunter. He had been telling me for years, he's like, this is a hidden gem. You really got to respect your parents. I think both of our parents mm-hmm. had this, this hidden quality. My, my mother was in the middle of watching this movie that I had never heard of. Steve, you got to sit down and watch this movie. It's incredible. And neither one of us had ever even heard of it, even though she was born in 1937. The movie was The Magnificent Ambersons. And, exactly. And she, she, she had never heard of it. She didn't know its reputation. But she thought it was magnificent, and she was absolutely right. I think, These stuff, yeah. they can't be hid among people who really love movies. My dad had really good taste in movies, but he was never self-conscious about it the way we are. You know, <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. There was no, he never would have. <laughs> they won't go to war over a, over a disagreement. Not only that, he wouldn't. He may not even known he had good taste in movies. He would have said, "I really like this movie," or or he'll even say, "This is a really good movie." But to him, he's got great taste in movies, but he's not a movie guy. You now, know did he I mean? ever love a dreadful movie? Honestly, <laughs> I don't think so. Everybody does. I mean, I guess, There's but... plenty of dreadful not, movies I, he, I watch. He would not have taken the line I would have taken, which is, it's a bad movie that I like. Right. I'm very... My my entire um, ethos... My, my, my main... If I was like... If I was a philosopher ascribing to a certain philosophy like stoicism or existentialism or whatever, my philosophy would be just acknowledge that sometimes you like bad movies and not every movie you like is good. Right. You know, not every movie you dislike is bad. All right, let's talk about the first movie. That first movie is Night of the Hunter. Selling novel that gripped millions. Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run, hide in the staircase. Run quick. Ruby, shit. What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter.
Okay, Steve. So let's uh, you give us the background, the stats on Night of the Hunter before we I get into a loose plot uh, summary. Okay, uh, the Night of the Hunter was released on November twenty fourth, nineteen fifty five. That's kind of interesting, right around Thanksgiving. It was released by United Artists. It runs a very brisk ninety two minutes. Thank God. Yeah, it, yeah. I, it would be difficult to take take more. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, directed by Charles Lawton, the great Academy Award winning actor. Um, he, he made such magnificent movies as uh, The Private Lives of Henry VIII, and uh, the '30s were huge for him. Uh, he's in Spartacus. Uh, he's in Spartacus. Uh, he's probably best known for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Also, he starred with Clark Gable in um, uh, as 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 uh, Captain Bly in the Mutiny on the Bounty, the the uh, the first sound recording. Is he in Witness for the Prosecution? He is in. He plays the prosecutor, and he is fantastic in I've that movie. Never seen it. And, oh. and one day down the line, we're going to do a courtroom episode. So maybe next week. I can't believe it because I that. I, I I swear to God, I, I was going to suggest for our next show we do courtroom dramas because right. I saw Breaker Morant or a uh, recorded Breaker Morant. I got to watch it again, so I haven't seen mm-hmm. it since the '80s, but I think it's going to be a great one. All right, it's meant to be. We got to do courtroom episodes. The very fact that I was thinking about that. <laughs> uh, any other stats on Night of the Hunter? Oh yeah. Well, it starred Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, Lillian Gish. It cost about seven hundred ninety-five thousand dollars. You could buy a movie like that for less than less than a million dollars. It was a flop. Um, it was, uh, of course, Lawton's directorial debut. He he was going to direct after this *The Naked and the Dead*, which was a uh, adaptation of a of a, of a um, Norman Mailer novel. Sounds like a Sam Raimi movie. But Sam Raimi. No. <laughs> it, it takes place in World War Two. All right, and it's a battle between a tough sergeant and a by the books lieutenant. And uh, I don't think it was, the movie was very good, but it is interesting. Um, but he was so crushed by this experience that uh, he never directed again. What did he win his Oscar for? Uh, the, the Private Lives of Henry VIII. Okay, and was he Henry VIII? He was. <laughs> There's some good Henry VIII material out there. Um, I actually really liked the one with Ray Winstone, which is called, mm-hmm. I think, the, the Eight Wives of Henry VIII, or something like that. How many wives he had. Well, is that a movie, or is that, was that a BBC, TV project? BBC TV project. It's a, it's a, like, was that a long time ago? Yeah, but you know who wrote it? Uh-uh. Uh, my favorite writer, um, Peter Morgan. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's well worth watching. If you uh-huh. like Ray Winstone, boy, this he, is Peter a good Morgan, one. Did, didn't he write um, the, the Special Crown. Relationship and um, yeah. uh, uh, the, the one with um, Helen Mirren as Queen Elizabeth? Yep, so that's called the Tony Blair the Trilogy. Queen. All right, mm-hmm. I'm going to make two recommendations here, All right. just because we're going on a tangent. Bring it one, on. he wrote something called the Tony Blair Trilogy, which is an HBO slash BBC project called The Deal, which is about the deal that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair made to us to... To, to basically decide who would take over leadership of the Labor Party. Then he made the Queen, and then he made the special relationship. The deal. I thought he made the special relationship before. No, uh, it's after. And it's all I'm surprised. In, it's all in chronological order. Okay. Here's my point. The deal is one of the best political movies I've ever seen. It's extremely hard to find. I watched it on HBO On Demand when I was in college, and I was flabbergasted by how good it was just in terms of a nuts and bolts politics movie um mm-hmm. that's the, my first recommendation if you can find the deal anywhere watch that movie that is a real hidden gem that is i've a, never even heard of the that deal is before. a hidden gem because it's literally hidden good luck finding <laughs> it uh the second recommendation and this is peter morgan and you got you and i've talked about this the best show on tv right now is the crown and he writes every that's episode fantastic. of that and this is his masterpiece best drama 
that it's drama, but this yeah. is his this is his masterpiece. This is his life's work. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the thing. This is the closest thing he is saying about life in general. And the fact he's using the British royal family to say it is really <laughs> astounding. Okay. Yes, not to get too far. I'm going to yeah, go even farther off for just a second. Oh, okay. I think the best TV show when when they can get um the star to uh actually focus on it is is Atlanta. Okay, fair enough. It, I hope it doesn't veer off in, in comedy, three. but yeah, yeah, but it's comedy, but it's also drama. But let's get back to Night of the Hunter. Yeah, you have you have the the toiling job of trying to describe this. Uh, Actually, I don't think that'll be too hard. But question: Good. Was that all the stats on Night of the Hunter? That is everything. I just want to point out a coincidence here, uh-huh. uh, which is both our directors. Pretty much, you know, your guy directed one movie afterwards, but pretty much never directed again. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising because both their efforts are so fine. He doesn't have a he doesn't have a credited. I know you said he. he what did he make? An, uh, an application Charles Lawton. No, no, but he, it never came out. He tried to make I Claudius. Did he finish? No, it did not oh, finish. You can see some of the footage online though on YouTube. All right, I'm gonna I'll just... bet it's really good. One, one last thing. Oh, please. This was written by James Aggie. He's a very famous um, uh, film critic. Really? It's a uh, oh. hell of a script. Yeah. Uh, he, he was also a playwright, a very renowned playwright, but he is probably most famous for his uh, film criticism. It's based on a novel. Before I um, summarize the plot, I want to settle something right now. Is this a comedy, or is this a drama, or is this both? It can only be a comedy in the theoretical sense. It's drama. I think it's a comedy. For the most part, I, I'll, I will put it this way. And I, I read something about, I'm sorry, but like this is important because as I described the plot, understanding the tone of this movie is super important. And that's why I'm sort of doing this in reverse order. Um, the Coen brothers apparently often pay tribute to this film in their movies. Uh, they directly quote it in many of their movies. And that made complete sense to me. And I thought about it. And I said, if ever the Coen brothers have been influenced by anything, <laughs> it is this movie. So if you can imagine the tone of the Coen brothers, blood simple, uh, you know, um, anything that's not a straight comedy for them, right? Even right. even something kind of like, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say um, No Country for Old Men because that's pretty mm. dead on serious. Mm. But if you think of like Miller's Crossing and, uh, and, and Blood Simple specifically— they're dramas, but they're full of comedy. Well, I, I, I consider uh, you know, Miller's comedies. Crossing a, a drama that's very witty, incredibly witty, with the, with the kind of dialogue that right. you would see in, um, in, in comedies, but in the context. Or Fargo. What am I saying? Fargo's a perfect example of this. I think some people will call that a comedy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, call, I think almost everything the Coen brothers do is a mm-hmm. comedy. Yeah. Point blank with elements of drama. I don't think they're dramas with elements of comedy. The only one I could say is probably a straightforward drama is No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. All the others, in my opinion, are comedies. But the point is this. You take the tone of Fargo and you've got Night of the Hunter for the most part. That and and if, when we start going, I would over, have never made that connection. When we start going over best lines, I think it'll become so apparent. All right, let me get into the plot here. All right, it starts off. What state does it take place in? Some southern state, possibly. You know Texas. what? I'm not sure. That, that's a good question. It might be Texas. It might be nowhere. Mm. Just consider it the American South. This 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 uh, movie's very much a children's storybook slash kind of like fairy tale. It even looks like a children's storybook, like the ones I read my son. It takes place where there are these two children. They're living. You know, pretty poor during the Depression. 
and uh, their father comes racing home, and he's got a stack of like $10,000 that he's robbed and murdered for, and he sees his son and daughter, and he says, you know, they're going to come for me soon. He's talking about the cops. He goes, you got to hide this money, and he's looking for a place to hide it, and he's and he's doing something, by the way, which I call radio dialogue, which I don't like, and it's one of my nitpicks of this movie. <laughs> where he's going, he's talking to himself out loud because they forget that film's a new medium, and we can see them thinking, and we don't need to hear them thinking. He's like going, the bar, no, they'll discover it. That, how about under the well? No, 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 that's too obvious. He's like literally saying this out loud until he eventually decides to put the money in his daughter, his young daughter's uh, dolly, like her little her little doll. The police come for him. They arrest him. They take him to jail. He is sentenced to death because apparently he has murdered two individuals. They never say like exactly who these people are that he murdered in pursuit of this money. While he is in jail, uh, his roommate, his bunkmate, happens to be this the main character of this film, which is the psychotic serial killing. Reverend, I guess, man of God, played by, is it Robert Mitchum? Robert Mitchum, yeah. Who, by the way, is also famous for playing uh, the Robert De Niro character in uh, Cape Fear. So this guy's, you know, he plays dark. (laughs) That's his deal. He certainly, by the way, uh, did you see who was playing the father? Yes, I I wanted to bring this up. The father is played by the villain of Stalag 17. That, is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Which is really funny because I totally believed him as the honorable murdering bank robber in this <laughs> in this movie. He So Robert Mitchum is oh, sharing... So Peter Graves. Peter Graves. I, I didn't know his name. He's oh, yeah. Well, very, he was very oh, famous for Mission Impossible and Airplane. Oh, he was famous. I wasn't oh, sure yeah. if he was famous or not. Well, he, he starred in Mission Impossible, and of course he was the pilot, Captain Over, in Airplane. No. Same guy. Are you sure? Absolutely. Okay, right on. Good for him. <laughs> very all-American type. But here's the yes. point. Robert Mitchum is in jail only for 30 days because he stole a car, and he just happens to be uh, bunked up with this dad, the father played by Robert... Is it Robert Graves? What was his name? Uh, no, not uh, Robert Graves. Peter Graves. Peter, Peter Graves. Graves. Excuse me. I think Robert Graves wrote I, Claudius. Anyways, <laughs> um, and he knows why the guy he knows why the dad's in jail he knows that the the father stole all this money so while they're in jail together he's constantly trying to coax him uh and trick him into revealing where he hid the money because this guy is going to be murdered he's going to be executed soon and robert mitchum is going to get out of jail soon so his plan is to go find this guy's uh widow and find the money and run off with it so he can't get the guy to admit where the money is before he's executed, but he is able to basically figure out who the guy's wife was, where he's from, and when Mitchum gets out of jail, he goes to find uh, the woman and her family, and his goal is to set himself up as the reverend of the town, and this is very like tent revival style Christianity, and his other plan is to you know woo Shelley Winters, playing a very Shelley Winters type, uh, <laughs> Young here, actually fairly good-looking Shelley Winters, which I don't think is her M.O., quite frankly. <clears throat> I think her M.O. is usually not a looker. I mean, that goes, like, literally into her roles. But she looks decent here, uh, but she's still playing very much the Shelley Winters type. So he sets himself up in this town. He uh, he eventually, I guess, does he marry her? Yes. So they do get married. And the entire time, he's threatening the two children. The son is the other main character, the older son, uh of of the guy who robbed whatever he robbed the bank or whatever right. it was and he's basically threatening them he's like hey i know you little brats know where the money is tell me but the kids won't tell him because the father made them swore them to secrecy <laughs> meanwhile the wife shelly winters has just no clue what's going on one of the most oblivious characters in film history 
Right up to <laughs> yeah. So no, I'm going to reveal it. Okay. He murders her. Yes. He murders her. You have fr- to talk. You have to talk yeah. about the murder. Yeah. He murders her in the first half of the movie yes. because <clears throat> the second half of the movie is this Odyssey-like travel down the river with the two children who have escaped Robert Mitchum as they take the money and the doll with them and they're trying to get away from this guy who is a hunter, Knight of the Hunter. Um, that's my summary. Steve, did I miss anything important? No, I, I think that was. I think that was pretty good. Um, well, we, uh, one of the most important characters, arguably the most important character besides Mitchum is, um, where the children, this, this, uh, you know, these two kids, uh, run into. Why is she important? She is the moral balance. Okay. She is the moral balance. Uh, so if is, he's the devil, she's Jesus? Right. Okay, gotcha. Um, because this, this movie plays on, on two sides. Yeah. Um, these children, they, they, uh, escape the father yeah well before we get to that i like how the daughter actually starts to fall in love with uh, not not fall in love but really loves yeah. the stepfather as as a father figure she is completely um fooled beguiled mm-hmm. the son she's very doesn't. young by the way she's like three or four years old she, yeah she's very and it, yeah it, because the look, she looks like a baby doll. She, well, Absolutely she's, looks she's like a doll. rocking a hairstyle that is no longer done on little <laughs> girls, which is it's it's straight up top and then turned into curls like in the back. So almost imagine the Hasidic Jew uh, sideburn <laughs> curls, but in the back. It's almost yeah. like a, a mullet for a lady where it's, it starts off straight in the back and then for mm-hmm. some reason you curl it. It's the Shirley, it's the Shirley Temple look. Yeah. And nobody which, rocks that anymore. Although the movie was made in the mid-50s, it takes place during the Depression yeah. and that's when, you know, uh, yeah. you know, girls had, had that kind of the hairdo. Her her skin is like porcelain and it it doesn't look... Oh, like a really a fully formed face. I, I well, they start her looking like a doll, yeah. so that by the time she gets off the river and she's ragged, the change is extremely noticeable. Yeah, you notice that when she get when she when she ends up at the house of this woman, she's a mess. I mean, she is filthy and the curls are gone. So they start her off clean to show where she ends up. It's it's amazing how long it takes her. Even after she's been threatened by mm-hmm. him, she still feels the need to show, um, you know, some sort of parental respect for parental authority. Right. That automatic thing that, that kids do, that automatic trust. Yeah. But the boy's just old enough to see right through this guy. Yeah. Right, Almost so from the beginning. We're getting too much in the story here. Right. We've got to tackle probably the number one unique thing about this movie, which is that movies don't look any better. Period. They don't. The I, I mean it like you're right. I, I was talking to They're a friend. Startling. The, the was, images are startling. I was talking to a friend recently about um, Anthony Hopkins, and I said I'm not saying Anthony Hopkins is the best actor ever, but there aren't any better actors. You, there are guys like Anthony Hopkins, Sean Penn, Lawrence Olivier, Daniel Day Lewis, and acting doesn't get better. They're all on the same level. This is there and Marlon Brando, by the way. In my opinion. They're at the top of the level, and there's not a noticeable level higher when you're like, okay, those guys are great, but there's then there's this level. And my point about this movie is that cinematography, it doesn't get better. It might be different and of the same quality, but I can't say to myself, you know, this movie's great, but there's another level of photography. There just isn't. Um, if Citizen Kane is considered the most innovative uh, photographic movie ever, I put this right there with it. Um, I think I think visually 
it is just as impressive as Citizen Kane. I think Citizen Kane is a more fun movie. I think it's a more entertaining movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. But visually, this movie's a flat-out masterpiece. And considering that Charles Lawton was a first-time director, and I'm sure he said to the cinematographer, there's a kind of look I want to go for, which is a storybook look, right? He is playing yes. on the idea of an innocent tale, uh, which is incredibly subversive because, you know... The monster in this movie is a man of God slash serial killer. Um, but a lot of credit has to go to the cinematographer here because I have a personal belief that every time an actor directs something, the cinematographer is potentially doing most of the directing and the actors just basically talking to the other actors. You know what I mean? I think that is um, that's very accurate. I, yeah. I remember um, uh, Robert Benton. Uh, his his first uh, uh, directing, I think, was The Late Show, but he did, he did Kramer vs. Kramer and Places yeah. in the Heart, which you like. Yeah. And I believe he let the cinematographer, I don't know who it is, I think it's John Alonzo, but I'm not 100% sure, uh, he let his cinematographer compose the shots, yeah. which was incredible I to think me. That not all directors lot. do that. I think when it comes to actor directors, I think that happens a lot. Yeah. And I think that if you look at guys like Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, all act and Robert Redford. Did Robert Redford win for Best Director he for did. Ordinary People? He did. All right, point is this. The reason you know these guys are scumbags <laughs> is that if, if they were true men, true men, uh-huh. they would have probably given co-director credit to their cinematographers. Because there's no way that they were like Stanley Kubrick being like, you're going to use this lens and this lighting setup. There's no way I don't buy it for a second. Who directed uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That, you know, um, I don't know. Was it, it Mike Lee? It, it, no, it was Mike... Um, Nichols? Mike Nichols. That's who I meant right. to say. It was Mike Nichols, right? And uh, his first uh, movie, yeah. he fired his cinematographer, right? Yeah. Because he had a setup. Yeah. He had a setup, and they used a particular lens. He, had, he requested a particular lens. Now, this guy, he came from Broadway, and he was, uh-huh. a, he was a stand-up comedian. He didn't know much. Yeah. But his cinematographer said, look, this is just easier. I've got it on there. But it'll look different. Even if you compose it the same way, the shot will look different with a different lens, won't it? The background will be like in focus or out of focus. And he said, yeah. So, so he fired him. That's what I admire. You're he confusing was stories unless the exact same thing happened to Stanley Kubrick on Killer's Kiss. Oh, no, no. This happened on um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Okay, because this happened to Stanley Kubrick. Did it? On his first major feature film, Killer's Kiss. Okay. I believe you. He fired. His, it was the exact same thing. The exact same really? thing. Well, you know what? Sometimes these stories get passed around, and maybe some of the times the names get changed. It but definitely I do remember, happened to Stanley Kubrick. Okay. Well, as far as I know, it, yeah. it happened here, but um, you know, it's, it's hard because I've heard like identical stories applied to yeah. different actors. Now, sometimes, uh, maybe this is really common. Yeah. Like a cinematographer wants to say, hey, we're going to do it this way, and hoping that yeah. this a novice director will crumble. Yeah. Maybe, that, maybe this happens when, all the time. When you're a cinematographer and you're working for a first-time actor-director, you've got, yourself, you've got to check yourself. Because you mm-hmm. get you, you know, I, I think a lot of these guys, these cinematographers, probably have big egos and are looking at these actor directors and be like they don't know what they're doing, and I'm gonna steer the ship here. Right? Well, a lot of them want to direct. <laughs> I bet so. Yeah. Um, but if I had to guess, I think when you're watching Night of the Hunter or uh, or um, Big Night, mm-hmm. the the actor saying to the cinematographer, "Here's the kind of thing I want to go for." And then the cinematographer's executing it. But that's mm-hmm. not what directors do. Directors mm-hmm. are supposed to be involved in every shot. Yes. And the best ones are. I mean, Stanley Kubrick never would have given up, you know, 
any control over a single aspect of any shot or, you know, a stray hair would be placed exactly where he wanted it. Well, reading IMDb trivia, the cinematographer was Tan- a guy named Stanley Cortez, and he yeah. said that he worked with two directors yeah. who really understood light. Mm-hmm. He said it was Orson Welles, yeah. Charles Lawton. Well, Stanley Kubrick, too. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is famous. No, no, um, I don't know if he ever worked oh, with. Oh, ones that uh, he worked with. The ones yeah. he worked with. So, so let's, talk, let's talk here for a second about Night of the Hunter. Um, for starters, I'll give Charles Lawton credit not only for the visual look he wanted to go for, but the entire premise of this movie, because it's subversive. It's a, it's a Grimm's fairy tale uh, taken to an extreme. Exactly. And, and in the era it was made, you don't see that often. You no. know, you don't see a murdering reverend, a murdering man of God who murders an innocent young woman and then attempts to murder her children. Like, this is not, you know, this is very taboo territory. And yet it's not a, it's not what you would call a realistic movie at not all. Not at all. Not and at all. In the mid-50s, you know, with, with um, On the Waterfront and mm-hmm. Marty and, and uh, From Here to Eternity, you were looking at movies that wanted to capture the gritty reality. This movie is not gritty. This movie is, dark, is, yeah. is darker yeah. than those movies, but it's not reality. It's, it's a very dark fairy tale. It is a fairy tale, mm. and, it's, and it looks like a fairy tale. I mean, this is really important for any of you that have children and you read your kids' books at night before they go to bed. The movie visually looks like one of these books, no more so than on the river scenes. When those mm-hmm. kids are on the river and the stars are up in the sky and the stars are like lit disproportionately to everything else, it looks like a storybook. Um, let's talk about a few. I have a few questions for you about this movie. One, is it anti-religion or pro-religion? <laughs> is it acknowledging the existence of God or denying it? <sighs> All right, I think it... It is. Um, I almost want to say it's a it's a it's a pagan's view of of religion because you see the virtues, um, mm-hmm. you know, you see a whole um, structure set up to protect the little ones, yeah. and that's when we get into Lily and Gish yeah. as the mother hen, kind of the uh, old woman in the shoe, has all these children that she's adopted. She has actually lost her son. Um, they, they were alienated. They only mentioned it in briefing, but in order to fill that hole, she's, she's, she's collected all these poor, desperate children, and she protects them. Yeah. And she is the strength of the movie. She's much stronger than Robert Mitchum, and that is really an interesting topic we have to get into in, in, in just a moment. I want to say that the movie is denying the existence of God. Mm-hmm. The problem I have as an atheist saying this is that the movie opens up on Scripture. And not only, not only does it open up on scripture, it opens up on the point that there can be false prophets. That That's absolutely true, which is why I think the movie believes in God. I do in, too. Or, I, do I don't too. know if the filmmakers do, but the, the point of the view of the movie yeah. is... God is real. Yeah, and, and, and how easy it is to be fooled yeah. by who is good and who is bad. There's one, there's, there's one point where, they're, where um, Robert Mitchum starts singing, bringing in the, bringing in the sleeves, bringing in the... Sh- uh, I, I forget what the word bringing is. Bringing in the sheep? I don't think it's a sheep. I'm well, not, maybe it is. Maybe I'm not a man of scripture. I've actually sung this song in church before, okay. and I've, I've forgotten what it... Um, but uh, the Lillian Gish character, yeah. very religious yeah. also. Well, religious, She's religious and spiritual. Yeah. Whereas he, where he's just uh, religious, where uh, you know uh, the uh, the reverend's just religious, and they're singing, they sing it as a duet. Yeah, and it's a it's a eerie, it's eerie as hell. It's yeah. like you're you're putting a carbon copy over over one with the other. Yeah, I think the point of this movie is to say that having faith is not enough. You must be a critical thinker. 
Um, and, True. A, and, a, and a reason for this is that most of the town is completely tricked by this guy because yeah. now I didn't grow up in a small Christian town, not my upbringing. But this movie seems to suggest that in these small Christian towns in the South, if you just say you're a man of God, you are immediately given position in the town. If you just pretend to be a preacher, then and you're given the benefit of the doubt. You're, you're given the benefit of the doubt to the extent that they're not thinking anymore. They are quite literally sheep, right? And he is the wolf. Um, and I think the movie is suggesting God is real, but you have to be a critical thinker. Otherwise, you are going to be led astray by people who claim to be of God. Right. Um, so I think, you know, Charles Lawton, he's taking an intellectual view on a spiritual matter, or at least the screenwriter is. Right. He's not telling you everyone's a phony, right? He's, they're not making that point. But they are making the point that being devout, understanding scripture requires critical thinking. It requires you literally reading the scripture and looking at real life and trying to connect the two. And it's not just about quoting scripture and then, and then acting in a way that's the complete opposite of it, which is the perfect, you say her name was Vivian Dish? Uh, Lillian Gish. Lillian. L- L- she was one of the Gish sisters that uh, um, uh, uh, D.W. Griffith started the whole movie business with. You just literally like lost 90% of the audience. Sorry. One of the old, <laughs> one of the Gish sisters who worked with D.W. Griffith in the beginning of this whole motion picture she business. She was enormously important at the beginning of, of, uh, of movies. She, she is, she is, uh, she, she was in, 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 in intolerance. This oh, is she's one of the, in intolerance. She is, she, she was the, um, the person that D.W. Griffith came, used as the bridging, uh, uh, bridging of the segments. Interesting. She was like the angelic, um, the person. She, she goes way back and she made movies right up until the mid eighties. Little bit of a rant here. Not really. Uh-huh. There are two sets. I've always wanted to have a megaphone to be able to call action on. Okay. Uh-huh. I don't want to direct. <laughs> I don't want to be on camera. Right. One is ran, right? When uh-huh. ran ran's famous for having thousands of extras yeah. in these battle scenes, no CGI. <laughs> right. So th- Imagine it's like being God, right? Or you know what? I'll add a third one, actually. The the Soviet version of War and Peace, which has the largest shot in the history of motion pictures. Do you when know you what say I'm talking about? I, I, How do I put this? I've never seen it, but I've heard okay. about it. So I'm going to extend my rant. Uh, <laughs> the Soviet version of War and Peace, the second episode. See the second episode or the first episode? It might even be the first episode. ends on this shot where the French and Russian forces are battling, right? And there's the shot is directly overhead them. So imagine you think, like, they're possibly on a crane, right? And there are all extras here. And we're talking thousands and thousands of people. And the shot keeps going higher. And you say to yourself, okay, it's not a crane. It's a helicopter. And the shot keeps going higher above the clouds. And you say to yourself, okay... It's not a helicopter. It's some sort of plane. And by the time where it ends up, you wonder yourself, are they in space? Like, <laughs> is this a spaceship? It is. I will show you this shot later. It okay. is the largest. It's, it's, how do I put it? It's like the it's, widest shot. It's ever the taken? widest shot in movie history. It's quite literally like you see this battle scene occurring mm-hmm. as if it was the Great Wall of China from space. And That's he's only using extras. And in fact, he was using the Russian military because it was a Soviet project. So the plane was a Russian military jet. The extras were literally Russian soldiers. So he had at his disposal... This is a perfect example of when communist filmmaking works, right? (laughs) When you have the resources of the state, which will always trump the resources of the studio. Okay, other, other movies ran. I'd love to call action on ran, and I'd love to call action on intolerance. These are huge movie sets.
That's my rant. Continue. Okay. No, no, no. We got to get back to Night of the Hunter. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, back to Night of the Hunter. I think the most interesting character in the movie, of yeah. course, is... Uh, it's Mitchum. Mitchum. Yeah. So, all right, question. We got to talk about Mitchum a little bit. That character is is so compelling, and yet I've got so many problems with it. It's, it he's called Harry Powell. He's such a Coen Brothers character, by the way. He's like, literally, <laughs> I mean, so many characters based off this guy. Let's talk about Mitchum. Is Mitchum having too much fun? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it hurts the performance, the amount of fun he's having? Yes. Uh, that'll go to a question I have later that I'm going to bring. Let's uh, just do it now. Yeah. Okay. My first question, I only had two questions. Lawton, Charles Lawton, uh, wanted to cast Gary Cooper in this role. Would have worked. I thought it would have been disastrous because okay, Cooper wasn't really an actor. Uh, oh, he wasn't? Was he? I, uh, what was he, George Clooney? Yeah. Okay, yeah. fair. He, he, he connected with the audience with his personality, but yeah. he's no actor. Yeah. He also considered Laurence Olivier, and my question was going to be, what do you think of these two choices? I think uh, Gary Cooper, who refused it because he didn't want to play a villain, he never yeah. did. Yeah. Um, he, he, it would have been so unimaginative, and I don't know how Lawton thought he was going to pull what he was able to get out of Mitchum, but Mitchum has a, is known for, on, on this movie yeah. set and uh, as others, he showed up drunk a lot. Oh, really? <laughs> a lot. In fact, the... Uh, I uh, respect it. Do you? <laughs> um, the, uh, near the end, uh, in the barn scene, at the yeah. very end, uh, they said he was drunk. Completely, completely drunk to, to do that. And he was on his flat on his face for most of it. He was all, they also considered Laurence Olivier. Laurence Olivier would have given a greater performance. It would have made it even better. I can't imagine it. Is... I can. Oh, man. He would have gone to town on that character. Name a role. That he's done similar, and you can't say Richard the Third. Well, there is no role similar, yeah. but um, if you see him in The Entertainer and see how he could be so sleazy, okay, you know, um, that's kind of an obscure movie, probably a, a hidden gem. It's not a very pleasant movie, but um, he's he's really you know he plays a decrepit comic in, in the early sixties, and it, it, it's uh, he he could give dimensions to that role. Mitchum does seem he's he's fine. And he, he probably does the most acting in, in his entire career. Yeah. This this character is all over the place. Yeah. This character, he has this, this bizarre attitude towards lust. The first thing he does when he gets out of prison, I think, is to go to a, to a burlesque show. Yeah. yeah. And he gets he gets a uh, switchblade erection when he sees <laughs> when he sees a uh, yeah. one of the strippers coming up. He is so repulsed and disgusted. By uh, you know, uh, sex with women, and yet he goes to this this strip show, and he's he this um, switchblade just pokes out of his. Well, coat. the movie was ahead of its time because um, if you watch the show Manhunter, not Manhunter, excuse me, Mindhunter, mm-hmm. one of the things, one of the major, uh, I guess, um, developments or um, insights into criminal behavior in the 20th century, which is that most serial killers are working from sexual uh provocation like basically Mm -hmm. most serial killer crimes are sexual in nature and that's what he was right so like you're right i don't think he could have sexual gratification with without the the, missionary position yeah it it has violence that's the point these most most serial killings occur because these serial killers are getting sexual gratification from the murders so the movie's ahead of its time in that sense um because this wasn't even discovered by this point Uh, if you watch that show mindhunter it's a true story about the two uh, fbi agents who actually 
created this connection, coined the term serial killer, and created the psychological profile that the FBI uses now when they hunt down serial killers. Um, it's a fantastic show. I think I started watching it, and your recommendation is really good. Back to Night of the Hunter. I love Mitchum in this. <laughs> it's uh, hard not to. I love that he's drunk. I love that he's funny. I love that he's having fun. This movie's a tragedy. These two children lose both their parents. If I thought about my son being an orphan tomorrow, it breaks my heart. You've got to have Robert Mitchum being funny for this to be bearable, <laughs> to be you know to stomach it. And he's hilarious throughout the entire movie. If he's got to be drunk on set to do what he did in this movie, I'm all for it. No, he he didn't have to be drunk. He it just worked out that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> he all, always got loaded on the set. Yeah, I'm all for it. I don't want Lawrence Olivier in this movie. I don't. I want someone who seems like a good hang. And uh-huh. clearly, Robert Mitchum's a good hang. You know, at least for the first two hours. <laughs> okay, listen. Um. I have to ask my second question yeah. now because it is, it, it, this is brought to the is brought to the forefront. Lillian Gish went to Charles Lott and he said yeah. she had a problem with how the movie was going. She said she thought that they are diminishing the evil of the uh, Robert Mitchum character. She was worried that they were making light of it and that um, you know it needed to be darker. Lawton stuck to his guns though yeah. and explained to her how important it was to. Uh, you know, uh, introduce an element of buffoonery yeah. to this character. Uh, well, the question was, uh, do you do you think Mitch? Do you think Lawton was right? And uh, obviously, of, you of do. Of course. Can you yeah. imagine if an actress said this to the Coen brothers? They'd say the snarkiest, most <laughs> disrespectful thing they could think of to her. Okay, now I got to go off on, on the side shot. Uh, yeah. Another side. I, I like George Clooney as a comic, as a light comic. I think he's oh, fantastic. Oh, brother, where art thou? Right. Yeah. He he actually he, he said in an interview he loved working with the Coen Brothers. He said he would always have these ideas because you know he, he's a director himself. He's not a very good one, but he's no. a director himself, <laughs> and he would suggest ways of doing it. And you know it, he said the Coen Brothers would always say, "Okay, let's try it this way," and they do it. But let's uh, when we're finished, let, let's go do it our way. And they yeah. always wound up with, with yeah. their way, and they were always right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. It's funny, but but you got to understand. You know, Lillian Gish had this status in the mid '50s of this screen goddess, and yeah. and he was a first time director, although a great actor. So um, it was cool that he stuck to his guns. Um, it does. You're right. It does take, uh, you know, making the big bad wolf stumble yeah. a few times does help a little. You should never impose your morality on other people. And I think she was, she, she, her complaint was from a dramatic point of view. Maybe she uh, felt her character would, would be, and her side yeah. would be more ennobled if what she defeated was more formidable. Maybe. But you know what? No one's watching the movie for her. You know, every scene that Robert Mitchum's not in this movie, in my opinion, suffers a little bit. And in fact, I think the weaker part of this movie is the second half because he's in the movie less. He's just so magnetic. He's so... He's he's hilarious. He's likable, but he's also (laughs) terrible. And you're not rooting for him, right? You're not... The fact that you're not rooting for him... But you also can't stop watching him and can't stop delighting in everything that he says. Um, And before we get into some of our, our normal categories... Any final thoughts on Charles Lawton here? Um, if you could only direct one movie in your life, is this a good one? Oh, absolutely. Right. He is the quintessential example of having only directed one released movie where right. you can be proud and hang your hat on. Unfortunately, he died in the mid to early 60s, so he never got to see the just you know okay. uh, reviews, unfortunately. Question. Is not counting Citizen Kane... Is this the best movie ever directed by an actor? 
who is an actor first? <laughs> who is an actor first? I'm going to have to think about that. Um, actually, you asked me this question. Uh, you, you proposed this a, a while ago. I, I got to think about it's that. It's not a long list. I don't think there's a single um, Clint Eastwood movie better than it, and I quite like Mystic River and Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. I don't think I love Mel Gibson movies, and I'm Jewish, so don't even try coming after me. Um, I don't think any of his movies are as good as this. I, I don't think they're better. Um, I think I thought Apocalypto was really good. I think it's really good. I don't think it's better than this. I, I think I, I think it's my favorite. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Certainly I agree. no Kevin Costner movies. No, no, Certainly no. no George Clooney movies. Well, um, as far as uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, I mean, uh, I thought American Sniper was amazing, and I thought Unforgiven was at least theoretically brilliant. But they're not better than this. No, not 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 really. No, it's, not really. Uh, you can you can pretty much we could pretty much figure this out right now. <laughs> and I don't. Think, I can't think of it. Nothing I don't comes think to Lawrence mind. Lawrence Olivier has directed a better movie. I don't think Richard the Third. Well, that's a good point. Hamlet was terrific. I don't think Richard the Third, which I think is arguably his best movie, uh-huh. is not better than this. I've never seen Richard the Third or Henry the Fifth, which I understand was both were pretty good. Hamlet was excellent, though. Richard the Third is interesting. If you do see it, and it's arguably his best movie, mm-hmm. find it without the color added. Uh, I bought, was that added? I thought that was, was shot added. in color. No, it was no added. Kidding. It's very clearly crayon. What about what about Henry the Henry the Fifth? Haven't seen Henry the Fifth. I think that's. I think that was shot in color. I think he doesn't look like a good Henry the Fifth. Mm. All right, so let's get into some categories here. All right, uh, I'm taking out my trusty phone here. First things first. Let's do best line. Do you have yours? Yes, and you're gonna be you're gonna be really uh, uh, disappointed because this is by Rachel Cooper, who's played by Lillian uh, Kish. Like, she's taking all these kids in. Uh-huh. Uh, most of them are unwanted, you know, unwanted pregnancies. She sees. She's out in the town. She, she yeah. brought the kids into town. Yeah. Right? And she sees one girl getting uh, uh, seduced by this wolf. Yeah. Uh, not as bad as, as uh, the Mitchum character, but still, still a wolf. And she shakes her head with this knowingness, you uh-huh. know, and she says, uh, she'll be losing her mind to a tricky mouth and a full moon, and like as not... I'll be saddled with the consequences. <laughs> I kind of like that. It, it's just so she's admitting she's going to take her in, right? Yeah. Right. Which she, she does. Shows compassion. By the way. She under she understands she, she understands um, people's fallibility. Her, the oldest girl that she has gets seduced by Robert Mitchum. Yeah, that's right. You know, and um, she understands. Yeah, she understands when uh, uh, mother what do you mother Cooper? She understands when the oldest girl tells her she's been sneaking off to yeah. see boys. Yeah, she understands. She doesn't approve. She understands, and, and there's kind of a beauty to, to that kind of knowledge. Yeah, you said it's earlier. It's it, it, You know what it is? It's Jesus. It's Father, forgive <laughs> them, for they know not what they do. That's literally what that quote is. Absolutely, and and uh, she she personifies that without yeah. the phoniness that the townspeople show. Yeah, because she's annoying. They put on airs, especially their neighbor. They yeah. they have this dilapidated old woman who is just just you know the, why, the biggest phony. You know what makes it work, Steve? You know why it works better for her than it did for Jesus? Because she's annoyed. Like she's like, ah, it don't fall on me. You know, Jesus. She's annoyed. Jesus was only disappointed. Yeah, Jesus wasn't. <laughs> Jesus should have been a little annoyed. To be fair to Jesus, like he should have been annoyed. He he took the, he took the whips to the money changers. Okay, that was pretty annoyed. I'm yeah, sorry. but you know he should have been. No, that was like righteous. No, that was when you know you're in the right and you're just ranting and you feel great about it. That's what that was. That was righteous fury. She has a kind of a, a resigned annoyance. Yeah, she knows this is yeah. part of the human character. I'm just which saying, I would love. I 
that's why I love the I'm character. I'm just saying she maybe delivered the sentiment better than Jesus did. Okay. <laughs> you said earlier, um, in order to make it as a Christian, you have to have discernment and intelligence, yeah. and I agree with that. But you also have to have strength. She sure. has strength. She is so much stronger yeah. uh, than than uh, the, the basket case, uh, the reverend. You do you know? know why? Uh, do you know why Charlton Heston liked this movie? Because she's got a gun. Hey, there you go. <laughs> That's her strength. Absolutely. She, she holds off the Robert Mitchum character. <laughs> she is a Second Amendment. Yeah, that's a right. Second Amendment character. She's, she's <laughs> Jesus with a gun. You know, let the Romans come after him now. <laughs> okay. Any other quotes from you? No. That uh, well, there there's plenty of. Good I got quotes. two. I couldn't. This movie the, is too the, the best good. quotes are on um, uh, Mitchum's fists. Yeah, love and hate. Yes. Which, by the way, you know who quoted that quote? Spike Lee. Spike Lee's character in Do the Right Thing, uh-huh. uh, Radio Rahim, quotes it almost verbatim. This movie's influential. Oh, which quote? Which quote? Oh, oh, the story about, about why he the, has love and why he has hate. The story of love and hate. That's yeah. right. Um, if you've seen... You know who else did? Who? The Simpsons. Because you had, uh, you had uh, Sideshow Bob lifting, and he has L-U-V on one because he, he only has three fingers instead of four. The point of the quotable nature of this movie, though, <laughs> once again, going back to the Coen brothers, it's like picking out best line from the Coen brothers. There's yeah. so much good dialogue. I just... I am going to make a wager that this is the most influential movie to the Coen Brothers. I really watched this oh, last I, night. Oh, I, I buy that. Watching this last yeah. night, I was like, I've never seen a Coen Brothers movie not directed by the Coen Brothers, except for this. Uh-huh. Okay, here are my two lines. <laughs> so when uh, Roger Mitchum's in jail in the beginning of the movie with the father who stole the money, the father knows Robert Mitchum's a complete fraud. He knows he's trying to trick him into revealing where the money is, but Robert Mitchum keeps you know, saying he's a man of God, this and that. And... Uh, and the father goes, you know, say, Reverend, what religion are you? And Mitchum goes, the religion the Almighty in me worked out betwixt us. <laughs> For starters, I love that quote because the word betwixt is not used enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using the word betwixt more. What a great word. Oh, heaven help if us. He had said between, if he had said between, I wouldn't have used this. The right. fact he said betwixt, it just makes him such a petty grifter. You know what I mean? He's clearly, the writer's so smart. The writer knows that if he says uh, the religion, the almighty in me worked out between us, it doesn't fit. It's got to be betwixt because he's probably not a man of education, right? He's a, <laughs> he's a petty, drifting grifter. And then the second one is in the exact same scene. I mean, this scene is probably my favorite scene in the movie, which is the jail scene when the father's talking to, the, to uh, Robert Mitchum. And Robert Mitchum's trying to basically t- say to him, he's trying to strike a bargain with him. He says, if you... Uh, you know, confess to me where the money is. I will save your soul before the executioner. But the way he says it, he goes, he goes, salvation is a last minute business boy. <laughs> now that should tell you what a phony he is. You know, it's so good though. It's, it, it's, is, it is. But it's also so spot on. The yeah. writer knows people want salvation near the end. Oh yeah. Right. It's not, they're not trying to walk the path of God Uh, during their life they only want the forgiveness at the end of it (laughs) Uh, uh, forgive me for forgive me for dipping back into the simpsons but there's an episode of the simpsons who he where uh, homer finds his own religion yeah and bart asks what if you're wrong and he just shrugs his shoulders and said i'll repent in the end yeah (laughs) so i'll make a deathbed repentance but what's great about this line is that robert mitchum's not making the point uh, you should walk the righteous path your life. He's actually making the point, it's a last-minute business, and I'm selling. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, right. I'll give out... I'll it's give a, it's out, a backstage pass yeah, to heaven. He's, he said, I'll give out a back... <laughs> he's like, I'm selling passes to heaven, but you got to be buying. Right? He's not giving them out. Um, uh, 
Uh, He's a charlatan. Yeah, uh, uh, Ms. Cooper. Okay. Mother Cooper. Okay. She doesn't... When he first comes um, to pick up the kids... Yeah. And he tells her, I'm their, I'm their paw. Yeah. Um, she's a little reluctant, but she's about to turn him over. It doesn't take long for her to see right through him. Yeah, that's right. You know? All right. So, question. Um, I want to just talk about Shelly Winters a little bit, and then we'll get to bad pitches. Um, actually, I have, a question. I have two questions for you. First okay. off... If Shelley Winters is in a movie, do we know something terrible is going to happen? <laughs> There's a good chance. Yeah. Uh, she, she doesn't turn up uh, too well. Let me see. Let's take a look. Uh, let's see. Uh, what was that? Uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah. Poseidon Adventure. Boy, she has uh, 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 the one with um, uh, Montgomery Clift, a, day, uh, a Place in the Sun. She doesn't make out too well in these East movies. East of Eden. And I think I might have asked you this in the- She's uh, in East of Eden? Yeah. She's the mother. That's not her? I don't think so. Yeah, she's the mother. I might be mistaken. I thought it was Joan Van Fleet. Uh, Maybe you're right. I thought it was Shelley Winters. But I'm gonna. But so here's my question, Um, and I may have asked you this in the Winchester '73 uh, episode. She survives Winchester '73. (laughs) Right, but but it's a rare time where terrible things happen. Terrible things do happen to her. So here's here's my question. (laughs) Here's my question. Um, and I may have already asked you this in that Winchester '73 episode. Is Shelley Winters a type? Is like if you're a casting person, do you say I want a Shelley Winters type for this movie, which is like kind of pathetic, maybe with inner strength, maybe without. Oh, by the way, Lolita, she's in Lolita, right? Oh, right. Oh, good. That, that that's probably the worst. Yeah, I mean, she's. You know, I, I. Yeah, you're right. By the way, it was Joe Van Fleet. Yeah. Um. Here's the thing. Uh. She's a, she's the type only in that. I, I wouldn't typecast her like I would Marilyn Monroe. Right, as, okay. as the jury put yeah. upon, although she often casts this, I would cast her in something where you really need a lot of complexity. You know what she okay? is, and I don't know. I think she's a fantastic She's actress. amazing, but you know what she is, why there's a Shelley Winters type? And pardon me if this is offensive. I really don't mean it to me. I don't mean it to be. I just can't think of a better analogy. She's a kicked dog. In so many of her movies, You're right. she's an abused animal. You are absolutely right in... in Especially in a place in the sun, and in this yeah. movie, Lolita. I mean, she's literally she's always on. Yeah, the but res- she can she can growl back. Yeah. She doesn't growl back in a place in the sun. She doesn't growl back in, in, this. in this. She gets murdered. But yeah. the point is, she's always on the raw end of the stick, yes. the raw end of the deal. I mean, mm. she's she's a kick dog. She's got mm. this kind of like, if you need some a character, a female character who you're going to put through hell, mm-hmm. she's she's the type. But she can put other people through hell. Sure. A patch of blue. Haven't seen. Poor that. little Lisa. Lisa uh, Hartman. Boy, she. She. Oh, she's a horrific to her, and she's not. I don't know if she has any scenes with Sidney Poitier. For I forget. It's been a while. But she's terrible to poor innocent Lisa. Lisa Hartman. She's. She's got range. Okay. Next she question. Really before we get to bad pitches, most important question of the movie: What happened to the money? At the end of the movie, right? He, 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 explode he explodes the doll. Yeah, and you see the money explode out. You don't see it blow away. Where's that money go? <laughs> Into the police benevolency fund. They're, they're on the scene. <laughs> I would hope it would go to that woman taking care of all those children that aren't hers. If anyone deserves that money and puts it to good use, it should be that woman. And I choose. It goes back to the bank. <laughs> and the fact that she's buying them Christmas presents at the end of the movie during the yeah. depression, I like to think. That money went to her. That would that would that would uh, that would complete the fairy tale. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I'm going to choose to believe that. By the way, slight criticism. I did not like the boy's reaction at the end. 
You know what? I didn't like it. He has the exact same reaction, of course, to his, to his father getting arrested. He's he just says it is pitiful. Don't. Yeah, it's like PTSD, but I mm-hmm. I don't buy it. He should be relieved. That was, you know what? It was so startling. It made me think real hard about why they had this. And apparently, I think think the kid just didn't want to see any any more people get hurt. But sure, you've got a good point there. You got an excellent point. I think the writer's going. It startled me so much because I didn't buy it. But the the writer is getting too uh, full of himself in this Mm -hmm. scene. The writer's starting to think he's really smart. He's like, you know what? He is. He's like, he's like, he's like, I bet you. That kid would get PTSD in this moment and uh-huh. not want this to happen to Robert Mitchum, the Robert Mitchum character. It's and a baffling reaction. It's a baffling, it's baffling reaction, reaction, and it's the writer, I think, overstepping his understanding of human psychology. Right. It's to the point where it just works, in my opinion, antithetical to everything else. Mm-hmm. So I don't like that part. Okay, bad pitches. Cool. Steve, okay. you want to go first? I got a really bad pitch. Okay, good. This is bad as it, bad as it gets. Okay. Um, Hansel and Gretel meet Hannibal Lecter. Now... Uh, we had the um, same thing. We had the same oh, thing. Oh, done. If I had ever seen the movie yeah. Henry Portrait of a Killer, I yeah. probably would have said Henry Portrait yeah. of the Killer, but I only I can only think of him. <laughs> mine mine wasn't great either. Mine was uh, the Music Man meets Silence of the Lambs. So we Interesting. Were in the, well, he's the Music Man, right? He's a, he's a charlatan. He comes and he tricks the town. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. All right, any final And it's a hell of a lot shorter than a Music Man, which puts it way above yeah, Music God. Man. All right. Any <laughs> final thoughts on this movie before we move on? No, except I love the silhouettes. Oh, yeah. You said, um, we were talking earlier, you said there were images that made it look like a storybook. And I thought that was a really great observation because you're right. I mean, you have Mitchum on this pokey little mule, which was actually turned out to be a a midget on a a small mule. Oh, jeez. Because, you know, they want to do it. It's offensive that he did it, and he's offensive that you said midget. Oh, uh, I'm a little person. I, 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 I apologize. And he's walking against uh, a sunrise. Yeah. Some of these these images are breathtaking. Yeah. Um, any so any more any more thoughts on this one before we move on? No, I, th- I think uh, if you're not convinced to watch it now, yeah. Look, you could watch this movie on mute, and there'd still be you could still be enraptured by it based on the based on the cinematography alone. This movie, I think, for many years was the pinnacle of hidden gems right i don't think gems were any more hidden or mm. any more or any more i don't know like precious like if a, you know a hit like a precious gem yeah. like i think this is the pinnacle that you don't get better undiscovered movies now i think lots of the film community know about this movie yeah but its I reputation think, is way higher than it yeah mm. but there were decades after it was made where it really was a hidden gem and yeah. we're talking like citizen kane level hidden gem yeah. okay the next movie was my pick. It was directed by Stanley Tucci, of all people, in his only directorial uh, attempt, and it is Big Night. Is this what I ordered? Yes, that is the risotto. Oh. It's a special recipe that my brother and I bring from Italy. But I get a side of spaghetti with this, right? Why? She likes starch. I don't know. Come on. There are no meatballs with the spaghetti? They were two brothers who came to America bearing Italy's greatest gift. To eat good food is to be close to God. I'm never sure what that means, but it's true anyway. <laughs> they have a talent for cooking. No, wait. Cut the table. Now, all they need... If you give people time, they learn. This is a restaurant, not a cooking school. ...is a recipe for success. If we don't receive your payment by the end of the month, we will foreclose. What do you mean? Their only hope is a plan. Louis Prima. Louis Prima? He's a friend of mine. I make a call. He's in town next week. You cook for him. Louis Prima is coming. He's not just some guy. He's famous. Their only obstacle... Men 
boys is each other. My brother sometimes is too... Uh, uh, I have a younger brother. I hate his guts. Their only chance... How much does that leave? $62.47. Is a feast. Safe for Marsha. The Samuel Goldwyn Company and Reicher Entertainment invite you to the four-star party of the year. Oh! A sumptuously satisfying movie from first course to last. Oh, my God. It's good, huh? He likes. And you believe it. You'll find the atmosphere is delicious. Oh. An appetite-rousing delight. It's a party, you know? It's a fun. The service impeccably crafted, wonderfully acted. I'm happy. And every chorus, a labor of love, delectable, warm, funny, and poignant. Here is tonight. We guarantee you a night you'll never forget. Bite your teeth into the ass of life. Big night. Your table is waiting. Let's eat. Okay. All right, Steve, you want to uh, give us some stats on Big Night? Yes, uh, Big Night, it was an independent movie. It was released in uh, September 20th, 1996, and was released by the Godwin Company. I, didn't, I couldn't find any listings of a major studio release, so I guess the Godwin, the Godwin Company, uh, the Samuel Goldwyn Company decided to do it. It runs a minute 49. It was directed by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott. Okay. Now, Campbell Scott, this was... His first uh, movie, too. Campbell Scott is a superb direct actor who did not get his due in the late 80s and 90s. But he wasn't the cinematographer. No, no. Okay. He, he, was, uh, he, he, he also star, stars, has a role in this movie, also. He does. He's the car A salesman. very important role. Uh, uh, Campbell Scott, he, his, his, his mom was Colleen Dewhurst, a great Broadway actress, and, and his father was uh, George C. Scott. So you have two actors making a debut. It was written by Stanley Tucci and a gentleman by the name of, I hope I don't mess up the name, Joseph Trapiano. Uh, interesting side uh, side note. This movie has uh, Scott and uh, Tucci mm -hmm. and Lee Schreiber briefly, although yeah. I don't, I don't can't know recall who he is. I who is he? I think he's Ian Holmes' son. Okay. Or at least his muscle. He doesn't have a line in the in the whole movie. It's just a really strange thing with an apron on fire. Remember? Yes. Uh, that, right, but, right. But we don't know what he's I thought doing. He was gonna, I thought he was going to die. The whole thing's, that part's weird. Um, they both appeared in that same year in another uh, movie that is fantastic called The Day Trippers. That is another hidden gem that we'll probably get to. Stanley so, Tucci and Ian Holm were also in another movie together, but I can't remember the name mm -hmm. of it. And, and, of course, Campbell and... I think it's Campbell, but uh, Tucci and uh, another one of the stars, who was Tony uh, Shalhoub, uh, they were in uh, The Imposters. That's right. So you had this little tight, yeah. tight knit group it's a of artists. Crew. Who, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a which I thought it was kind of cool. The movie cost four million dollars and made twelve million, which is a modest profit. It's a success. Yeah, it's a two thirds profit. Yeah. Well, remember you have to double the budget uh, two and a half times, so they made a modest, uh, okay. modest All profit. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, it stars Stanley Tucci, Tony Shalhoub, uh, Shalhoub, I'm sorry. Shalhoub. Shalhoub, I'm sorry, Shalhoub, the yeah. wonderful actor who's, yeah. talk about a guy who has range. Yeah, well, we'll get you know, into him but in a little while. He, yeah, he, yeah, he also starred in Monk and, and, yeah. and all those things. Um, has a terrific cast, Mini Driver, Ian Holm, Isabella Rossellini, Mark Anthony, who doesn't have a line, just like Lee yeah. Trevor doesn't have a line in the, the whole the movie. Latin, the Latin singer, Mark Anthony. Singer Mark Anthony, yeah. right? Actually, he's the first actor. Is it you've seen Anthony, in the movie. like Mark Anthony? Or I'm is not it? an expert. I'll in Mark look Anthony. I think I think it's Mark Anthony, but I, keep going. Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's it. Um, just that. Uh, 
they they seem to have this little mafia group that made some really cool, funny movies all at the same time. They're doing really interesting work, and I, and I really like it. I, I don't know how to pronounce his uh, name. It's, it's Anthony. It's Mark Anthony. With, with the TH. I don't know if with he pronounces the TH. it. Though. Who, who, you know, these Hollywood folk, who, who knows how they... Uh, well, he's on Hollywood. How they roll. Okay, so um, let's do the plot a little bit. This one should be easy. There are these two Italian brothers in the 50s. They're from Italy. They have, they're immigrants. They have opened up a restaurant. One of the brothers, played by Tony Shalhoub, is a world-class cook. I mean, he is, you know, Michelin star-level chef, okay? But the problem is, nobody wants to eat at their restaurant because he won't cook Americanized Italian food like spaghetti and meatballs. How dare he? <laughs> yeah, he won't, he won't do it. And keep in mind, this is at an era. My dad grew up in the 50s. My dad was, in fact, my dad was a teenager in the 50s. That's how old he is. And my dad loves this movie. He also put me onto it. And he was telling me that back then, ethnic food was not, you know, there weren't enough millennial hipsters to really appreciate good food. (laughs) No offense to the baby boomers, but there was a lot of TGIF Fridays for you guys. (laughs) Um, The point is, this restaurant would have been mega successful in today's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But back then. I think it takes place in New York, right? Yeah. But back then, everybody wanted spaghetti and meatballs, and the chef wouldn't cook it because that Tony Shalhoub wouldn't cook it because it's not traditional Italian cuisine. Thank you, part New Jersey. It takes place in New Sorry. Jersey. Sorry, uh, New York. Yeah. <laughs> so across the street, though, is a hyper-successful Italian restaurant which cooks the worst versions of Italian food, <laughs> and the owner of this place is Ian Holm. Anyways, Ian Holm presents himself to the brothers as a fatherly figure. He just wants to help them. He wants their restaurant to flourish, right? He sees they're not doing well, and he tells them, he goes, you know what, I'm going to help you guys out. He goes, I am friends with a big-time jazz singer, Louis Prima, who, by the way, is a real guy, apparently. Yeah. And he says, he says, Louis Prima is coming into town tonight. And he goes, here's what I'm going to do. He's like, I'm going to bring him to your restaurant, have him eat at your restaurant. We'll get the press there. We'll get a bunch of people there. And Louis Prima eating at your restaurant will make it well-known, and everybody will want to come eat there. So Stanley Tucci, who... If, you know, if his brother is an artist, right, then Stanley Tucci's a capitalist. He's the opposite. All he wants to do is make money and live the American dream. He loves America. He loves the cars. He loves the action. He loves the women. He loves multiple of the women. Um, he knows what's good. Yeah. He, he knows how he knows good his brother good. is. Yeah. But he also knows it won't sell. <laughs> That's right. He wants to sell. He wants to live the American dream. He wants to live Ian Holmes' life. He doesn't want to live the life of the undiscovered artist. Um, anyways, so Stanley Tucci and the brothers, they decide to pour all of their savings into one big night, which means they're going to basically make every single meal in their kitchen. They're going to buy decorations, booze. Everyone's going to eat for free. They're going to gamble it all on this one big night. Um. And they invite a reporter, I think. And they invite a reporter because they think Louis Prima's coming. They right, the publicity will... Yeah, exactly. Um, I won't give anything away in terms of the ending unless we decide to get there. But here's what I'll say first before you watch this movie. Make sure you've eaten well. <laughs> Make sure you have eaten well before you watch this movie. Because I would argue I don't think there has ever been tastier-looking food committed to film that wasn't a food documentary. <laughs> There is one particular dish in this movie. I wish to God I had it what was when I thing? saw it. What, what was it called? It's like that pie thing, right? Yeah. All of the fantastic food, the, the, the tomato paste and, and the meat and, and everything they dump in it. And they, they turn it into a pie. And it looks magnificent. And they slice it almost like a cake. Yeah. I'm trying you know? to find... I'm it's, trying it's like to... it's a really tall bundt cake, but it's filled with all the, the, the best 
Italian uh, uh, foods uh, that you can imagine. It is oh, timpano. Man. What? It's called timpano. 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 I gotta find a restaurant that serves timpano. So there's a montage in this movie of the peop- of the of the actors eating, and either they're great actors. Or that food is real. I'm not sure which one it is, because uh, the food looks good. It might just be plastic. Mm-hmm. But this, in, so basically, there's there's a part in this movie where there's no dialogue, and it's like, and it's basically listing off the course of cuisines, right? Like one, like you know, like first is the salad. There's like appetizers, antipasta, the main dish, right? And you are just watching these. And it, it literally, there are like actual text uh, titles, right? Where it's like first dish, second dish. Yes. And you're watching the food roll out of this kitchen. And one thing is just more impressive than the next. And you get the sense, this is the best meal that's ever been eaten anywhere on earth. And that these people are so fortunate to be there. Um, but let's talk about the movie for a little bit. First of all, Steve, did you like it? I did. I did. I did like it. Um, uh, you have to have some patience with the movie. I think. Really. A, a little bit of patience, because it's it, there, there's no incredible other than the other than the food. There's no obvious charms to this movie. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking it about? Won't, the movie won't bowl you over with melodrama. No. It won't bowl you. It, it's it's a movie that's it's very. Uh, I think is. It's Very grounded. subtle. You're not going to laugh out loud. It's, I would no. consider it a comedy, but you're, there's there's no gut busting yeah. laugh for the most part. Um, this movie, uh, like I said, very subtle, and it's it's the pleasure of a very deliberate, deliberately pla- paced, not boring, but a deliberately paced movie. It, it gives you those kind of uh, that kind of pleasure. This movie is a triumph into movies for adults. Yes. Like in terms of like grounded movies in where people act like people and nothing out of the realm of uh, human possibility happens, <laughs> right? This is a movie. This is what I keep talking about. If you want to talk about movies about real life, this is as real life as it gets. You can see this happening in real life. There is drama. There is betrayal. But these guys are human. And what makes them tick are human. You know, one of the brothers... What he wants, Stanley Tucci, is constantly just out of his reach. And all the other brother wants is appreciation for what he knows is art. And neither of them can achieve it. Neither of them can get what they want. Um, let's talk about directing for a little bit. How are you... What, were, what was your view of Stanley Tucci as a director in this movie? I think he loves uh, looking at food. I think he <laughs> loves the kitchen. He's a food show now, by the way. Th- this, this, what? He's a, he's a food show on CNN really? now. Yeah, where he like, goes to Italy and eats good food. I could see that. Remember, he he also starred as Julia Child's uh, husband in Julie Julia. I did not see that. Was it good? <laughs> no, not particularly. Okay. But he was he was good, and, and actually, yeah. Meryl Streep was pretty good. good. He's always good. But so she, so he played the um, the husband of one of the most famous yeah. French chefs. Uh, well, she French American. French. Yeah. Well, she she taught French cooking. Or, oh, okay, but gotcha. among other things. Yeah. But uh, what were we talking about? We we're talking about Stanley Tucci and how do you think he was as a director? Oh. You said he loves looking at food. I love the patience he had to let scenes, uh, you know, develop. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you don't have this knockdown, drag-out fight between the uh, brothers until the yeah. end. Yeah. You can see, but you, before that, you see you, he builds yeah. the uh, disappointment. Yeah. It's one little disappointment. Yeah. And a ret- there, there's disappointments. There's retreats, slight accusations, yeah. compromises, until it blows up at the end. Yeah. This... 
this was a, just a superb strategy. The, the, the pacing mm-hmm. is it works for it because if you had a fast-paced thing, you'd have to introduce a lot of you know blow-ups, but you yeah. don't get that. You get to watch, you know, um, them grow. You get to watch the conflict in slow time. Yeah, with it with a arguably satisfying ending, and then and then the, you have to talk about the ending. They make they make peace is the only thing you can say as yeah. far as, as the ending. But it's incredible. Is the, the are last? You a, are you? Do you find that phony? No. Well, okay. You, you sounded disappointed that they made peace. No. 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 They, okay. They, they were disappointed in themselves. They were disappointed yeah. with with how they behaved. No. No. Yeah. No. Okay. I okay. thought it was an interesting ending. I loved the ending, even though. Uh, do, do you want to bring it up or or, or is no, it too sure, early? No. Sure. Go ahead. Well, they had this big blowout. Yeah. Okay. Um, they had this big fight on the beach where yeah. all their uh, uh, frustrations come to a head. Yeah. You know, uh, the Tony Shalhoub character, uh, I believe he's called he's he's called Primo as a and Stanley Tucci's character is called Secondo. Yeah. So you have prime, first and second. First and second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, obviously, Primo is the older son. He's the older son. He's the one committed to um, you know the virtue of of great cooking. At the expense he of all He represents else. the old world. Oh, this is absolutely a contrast between old world and new yeah, world. He represents tradition and like values. Yes. Uh, when Stanley Tucci is going about the city trying to find uh, some of the food mm-hmm. for the, the big night, yeah. he comes across and he gets he sidetracked. Yeah. Which I think is very, it's, a, it's an important point. Mm-hmm. He gets sidetracked. He goes to this deal, Cadillac dealership where. Played by the co director. Right. Played by, by Campbell Scott. Yeah. Campbell Scott, you said that he wanted, uh, that, that uh, Secondo wanted to be like Ian Holm, the yeah. guy who owns the restaurant. Yeah. I think he wanted to be like the Campbell Scott character. Campbell Scott has everything he wants. One, he doesn't care about family. Yeah. And, and I think at this point in time, of course, he loves his brother, but he's seeing family as a, a drag. His, yeah. He's having trouble with his girlfriend, yeah. uh, a mini driver, and he sees women. Uh, the Campbell Scott character sees women. You know, what? Yeah. Uh, they're just somebody to, be, somebody to date. Uh, Campbell Scott has this big, luxurious uh, Cadillac. It's half the size of their restaurant. Yeah, right. So he takes him out on a drive, and he gets completely seduced. This is New World. Yeah. And it's not all... Uh, yeah, it, it, basically they're saying it's all bad. Yeah, the movie's <laughs> a bit of an indictment on America. Yeah, which I... No, I don't... I, which I don't go along with. <laughs> I mean, because there's a lot of vitality in America... But and I think they acknowledge that, and that, that, that's what seduces him is the vitality, the newness, right. and the vitality. The energy. The, the He's energy. energetic. He Stanley lo- Tucci's yes. got energy. Absolutely. Uh, Shalhoub, he does a slow burn yeah. the whole movie. You yeah. can see the uh, the the what is what's the opposite of kinetic energy? Stored energy. You can see the stored energy just yeah. building in him, right, and he is right. ready to explode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. of the disappointments and the compromise he's forced to do. Uh, I, I I thought that the contrast was really important. Was really important, and I think that uh, Secondo, I think you nailed him. He wants all all the superfluous stuff. Yeah, he wants so, embodied by the Campbell Scott. Character. In regards to Stanley Tucci as a first time director, the first thing I want to say is I think visually this movie's a triumph. I was so impressed by the cinematography in this movie. It's obviously not Night of the Hunter. It's much more traditional and competent in mm-hmm. that way. But I think. They really go for broke in this movie. There are, you know, and not only that, but they they do everything right in this movie visually. I mean, there are times when the movie, when the, you know, when you're on like a tripod shot that's slightly moving. The movie opens up on a crane shot that I actually think should have lasted longer. I thought that was a it bold- lasts pretty long. 
Could it goes lie. from a shot to the sea. Yeah. Now, this is New Jersey, so it's probably the ocean, maybe looking back onto the old country, it's actually, maybe. It's actually just sewage runoff. Uh, it, it doesn't look glamorous. It yeah. doesn't look glamorous at all. But you're looking out uh, yeah. what could be the ocean. I don't know. So there are times, like I said, when the movie's, you know, doing, like, nice tracking tripod shots. And then there are times, like, especially in the kitchen, where everything's handheld and it's all mm-hmm. kinetic energy. <laughs> I think I think visually, you know, this movie's a triumph. I think it's excellent. There's one shot in particular, and you probably know what it is, mm-hmm. and it's towards the end of the meals when the when the shot, everyone's so full now and so satisfied. And it's a, it's a shot, and it's trucking left. It's, it's like a wide shot, but it's uh-huh. close to the table. And it's trucking left, and it's showing all the customers just to- – no, they're not customers. <laughs> the guests completely satisfied and full. And then there's this one woman, slightly middle-aged, and she's laying down on the table, on top of the table, almost like a <laughs> jazz lounge singer on a piano, smoking a yes. cigarette like she's just had made sex with the food. It is – Amazing! Like I just, I'm it's post so, meal, post coital uh, yeah, uh, uh, so feeling. I'm so impressed by everyone involved visually in this movie. Um, one really interesting note watching this film, made in 1996, looks like 1972. Have you ever noticed? That the, really? Did you notice the film stock in this movie looks so dated? I like that, mm-hmm. but it looked extremely dated from a film stock perspective. Either Godfather, Godfather Part Two was the last movie that used um, the old-fashioned, old-style Technicolor. It almost looked like the you thought sting. it was the rich. Oh, okay. I, no, like literally the grain. Like this, this I was watch. I watched both movies last night, and Wait, I what, what, what two movies? Night of the Hunter and Big Night. Oh, okay. And I swear, man, Big Night, it looked so old, and I do not mean that as an insult. Now, are you referring to the uh, the saturation of the colors? Because the colors are really saturated, and you have to. you got, got a lot of reds and, and Partly, a lot of... but also uh, the grain in the film. Yeah. The, the film texture. You know, film now, they clean it up to the point where sometimes it looks like high-def video, even when it's film. Yeah. Um, this movie, I mean, just like... If, if you were... You know when you say something looks like an old movie, but it's not black and white? Right. That's what this movie looked like. It looked like The Sting. Like, it looked that old. I was just really surprised that a movie made in 1996 uh, looked that dated. Now, I don't mean that as an insult. I like things that look dated, mm-hmm. but it certainly does maybe not look... Maybe they used? Maybe they yeah. used some 20-year-old it uh, almost film looks stock. Like, it almost looks like 16-millimeter film mm-hmm. shot on a high ISO. Right, so when you shoot on a high ISO film grade, you know there's so much uh, detail and texture in everything. The mm-hmm. grain is increased, right? The noise is increased, mm-hmm. and that's what it looked like. But it still it looks amazing. Um, I just think in terms of look, I can't believe Stanley Tucci never directed another movie because this movie is so freaking good. In my opinion, this movie is a hidden gem. If you look on Wikipedia. It doesn't say anything about like this movie being rediscovered by people. And it's just, it's so insightful. It gets people so well. It understands what makes people tick. It understands people's desires. It under- and it's saying something about life. And, you know, once again, what makes life worth living? It's completely cinematic. It's well-written. You say it's slow-paced. I just think it's... Well, I said deliberate. I specifically said it wasn't It wasn't slow or boring. It was very deliberately Anything paced. without an explosion or a murder looks <laughs> deliberate, right? Well, you know what I mean? Like like uh, uh, the, To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. You know, it has that kind of... Um, uh, Once again... Kind of, a, kind of a roomy way yeah. of... of Mo- uh, they're called movies about people. 
They're called no, I, normal movies. I'm, like, it's not a. I'm yeah. not saying it's it's a, it's a bug. I'm saying it's a feature. <laughs> I think it, you would only say it's delivery paced in contrast to what most movies are today. Well, not e- not not even that. Um, if you take a movie like uh, say Mildred Pierce, okay. uh, which is you have one melodramatic development yeah, after the right. other, one person slapping right. each other in the yeah. face. You know, I just watched that miniseries by the way. Oh, what it a was brutal. It what a dreary. What a yeah. They drained. Uh, they drained. They they remained really close to yeah. the, uh, the the source material, James M. Cain's novel, but they shouldn't have whatever whatever yeah. Michael Curtiz did. He yeah. he did it right on the first one because it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of yeah. great melodrama. My friend Greg, my other, he's like the other version of you who I respect on movies. He said it was like an almost religious experience for him that I had to watch Mildred Pierce, and I watched now the, the miniseries or the, the or miniseries. The movie? Oh. And I walked away from it being like, this isn't religious. This is just proof there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> this is not life-affirming. This is the opposite. This is nihilistic terror. No. Yeah. yeah. Everything that... My point is, don't yeah. watch Mildred Pierce, the miniseries. It's watch the movie. It. The movie... It, one, it's over a lot quicker. You won't, yeah. you won't burn as much time. But the... the but my point with Mildred Pierce is yeah. I, I know what it is, yeah. okay? It yeah. may be junk, but yeah. it's fun junk. This movie takes its characters seriously. Absolutely. It takes the women seriously. Isabel, uh, Isabel Rossellini yeah. um, is the wife of Ian Holm. Yeah. And they have a terrific scene between her and Minnie Driver when they talk about men and how disgusted they are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They take time out to go on these side characters yeah. and give them their voice. I, I think it's Did terrific. you know that Isabel Rossellini... Was um Roberto Rossellini's um well what's daughter? her name's daughter the the actress though oh Ingrid Bergman yeah Ingrid Bergman's daughter yeah. I never knew that yeah. I would have figured she, she was she looks Sof- like her too I would have figured she was Sophia Loren's daughter oh yeah you know what I mean because <laughs> when you look at Ingrid Bergman you don't think of uh, Italian well she's Swedish yeah that's my point oh right okay. but she married an Italian I guess they lived there she had and an they affair. made movies no. She had an affair with him. She didn't marry Rosalini? She did, but but here's the story. She had an affair with him. Uh-huh. And in fact, the affair was such a scandal that she fled to Europe for years. It ruined her career in America, yeah. Not exactly. While in Europe, well, while. she made movies that are now considered masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Europa 71, and what's the other one? Um, it's the it. one at Mount Vesuvius. Um, uh where uh, she and George Sanders are this dreary couple, and the and then they, they they just you know make each other miserable until the very end. Journey to Italy. Okay, yeah, right, right. But Journey it didn't Italy. ruin her career in America because she came back to America eventually yes. and starred in Anastasia. Anastasia won an Oscar won, for which she won her second of three Academy Awards. Yeah. She won a third one for uh, a great movie. Uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Who, by the way, I have no idea which character she is in it. While I was watching that movie, I had no idea who well, she was. Well, that tells you how transformative she was. Who was she? Was she the old woman? No. Who was she? That was another wonderful actress, Wendy Heller. Uh, uh, she was the um, uh, the nanny. You know, she um, when they remade this, yeah. they cast Penelope Cruz, but she uh, didn't say the line that made that won her her Oscar. What was the line? I want to I want to help little brown babies backwards like myself. <laughs> Weird. I Don't you re- remember that? No. And she made like, a big deal about wanting to because she she yeah. was the nanny of, yeah. of, of of Daisy. Okay. As you know, Sidney Lumet is my favorite director. Yeah. Um. But I don't I don't remember her in this movie at all. N- not once watched this movie did I say to myself, "Boy, there's an Oscar winning performance in uh-huh. here from anyone other than the detective, uh-huh. right? And from anyone other than Albert Finney." Uh-huh. So I'm surprised that she won a third Oscar for that. But anyways, the point is. By the way, reading about her, uh-huh. you know what one of the one of the early uh, praising reviews of 
of her was. You want to talk about like strange white supremacy in the Uh-oh. movie business? It was like she brings a fresh Nordic quality to like the movie business. See, I, what I a weird thing for somebody to say, Nordic quality. I don't think that's white supremacy. I don't. I don't think it smacks of white supremacy. Mm, I think that if you wanted to say some white supremacy bullshit and you wanted to sneak it in there, oh yeah, that's how you would say it. It it can be, but that doesn't yeah. mean that it was. I mean, uh, you know, Swedish women are are, are known as as uh, as you know a particular brand of beauty: blonde hair, blue eyes. Strange. Just oh strange. no no no! I don't think it's I don't think it's strange at all. But uh, all right, let's get back. Let's she get... also played Joan of Arc, so uh, yeah. you know. Let, let, let's get back. Oh to, yeah, uh, right. To Big, Big Night. Night. All right. There is this one uh, talking about cinematic. Yeah. yeah. They use the um, uh, Steadicam, which it had just been in just uh, you know about 17, 17 years. Yeah. In use. Um, talk about contrast between old world and new world. Yeah. They use the Steadicam, that gliding uh, shot. When they go visit the new successful uh, Ian home, uh, yeah. I don't think it's new. By the way, I think it's been there longer. It might even be long. Yeah, yeah. you're probably you're absolutely right. But uh, but 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 new in the sense that uh, new world, new world. Yeah. Uh, with these movies, yeah, about artists. Yeah, and let's face it, they, they consider them artists very uh, much so. Very much so. I always I think that in on one level, this is a parable for how Hollywood works. Yeah. Okay. So. At the very beginning, the very first scene is a, a hilarious scene where this this two this is crass vulgar. Uh, they uh, would couple. have been my grandparents. Okay, well, not, not crass vulgar necessarily, but <laughs> they're just American. They're just Americans. They're, who the, want... they're, the, they're the quote unquote greatest generation. These are right. the World War II generation, and these people just if they were white, 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 white. So mine were they wouldn't have been my grandparents because my grandparents were Jewish. Mm-hmm. But if they were white, 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 like capital W white, right. they didn't eat ethnic food. Ethnic food to them literally was spaghetti and meatballs. It's right. not like, you know, I'm, people bash millennials a lot, mm-hmm. but we eat good food. People are like, millennials are putting chilies and TGIF out of business. Yeah? You should be thanking us. Actually, I like chilies. Yeah, well, guess what? There's, hands, there's the divide. I would say hands off chilies, but that's actually what's led them to <laughs> to, be, to, to go. Uh, anyway, yeah. this is couple. Yeah. They just want a good spaghetti dinner. They come yeah. in. And they're given risotto, and they don't like it, and they send it back. They don't even this... know that they don't like it. They just don't like that it's not spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> That's right. They want spaghetti and meatballs, yeah. and they're willing to eat the risotto, I think. But they yeah. want spaghetti and meatballs. And when the when the uh, you know the artist brother finds yeah. out about it, he wants to confront them. He wants yeah. to go out there and tell them, "You can't have two starches. Yeah. Uh, that risotto is a masterpiece. What are you talking about? It is it is hilarious." Who's the bigger villain in the movie? That couple or Ian Holm? Ian Holm is not the villain. He looks like he's the villain. He's not the villain. So the couple's the villain then? Uh, no, no, nobody. <laughs> it's, it's a, it, I guess it's it's American taste, which okay. is embodied by the couple. Okay. No, Ian Holm's the villain. He acts dishonorably. He acts dishonorably, but if you believe him, at the very end, he says... I don't what, believe him. What he does, he does for them. Now, he... He's got a sly motive. He wants those two brothers to yeah. work for him. Yeah, it's self. He knows how, how how good they are. He's rational. But okay, that 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 could be true. Yeah. But the ultimately, he's got a point. Yeah, they're not built for this. Right. They're at least primos. Not not, not to stay in America. They are not built for this. Yeah, primos not built right. for it at least. And and Secundo, he can't do what he wants to do as long as he is primo because primo is an artist. Primo is not willing to sacrifice. Forget his art. He's not willing to sacrifice his values 
for America. Right. I mean, that's what it really comes down to is his values. And at one point, uh, Primo says to Secundo, this place is, what do you say, eating us alive or it's it's rotting us? Or he in, On the beach, is this big thing where he, he's basically saying that America is just completely degrading them, yeah. that they're losing the sense of who they are versus, you know, Secundo... Yeah, at the end of the day, this movie is siding with Primo. There's no question. Yeah. The movie, Stanley Tucci is siding with Primo in this movie. He's not giving Stanley Tucci's, Tucci's goals any credence, right? Mm-hmm. They're not considered to be honorable goals. This is not, yeah, tradition's good, but new world energy's good too. It's not <laughs> yeah. saying that at all. Right, they is, don't split the difference. Yeah, they, they come down on one side. That's, that is yeah. true. Um, one thing, I just want to point out why I think this movie's so good, because it has such an attention to detail in people. There's a part in this movie where the woman played by Allison Janney, very young Allison Janney, who works at the flower shop, she is um, Primo's love interest. He's got a really cute, innocent crush on her. She comes to the big night. He invites her. And he doesn't invite her. He's too shy to invite her. True. I think his uh, brother. Stanley, Stanley Tucci invites yeah. her. Anyways, um, when he finds out that she's there, I don't think he knew she was coming. He gets kind of nervous, and yeah. he does something. He eats mint the leaf he eats mint leaf from his kitchen and i thought that was such a great little detail he's a chef it's so great i didn't even notice it yeah Good he's a you. he's a chef he's got mint in his kitchen uh-huh. And he's just going to eat that leaf so his breath smells good. That's the type of thing where you have to think about it. When you're writing the movie or you're on set directing or you're the actor, you're like, hold on, I have an idea. Like the character's nervous and he's a chef, so he's not going to pop an Altoid, right? He's going to eat mint from his kitchen, like the actual, the, the leaf itself. That would be the old world solution to bad breath. Exactly. It wouldn't be exactly chewing gum or something like that. And the point like is, this movie is full of little details like that, little human details that yeah. I really get off on. I mean, yeah, I, it could have been. A, it could have also been a palate cleanser. But anyway, <laughs> uh, d- d- um, I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, one thing um, that I admired was the the, the, the tracking shot, the the steady yeah. tracking shot in the new uh, restaurant. Yeah, I think it's uh, one shot for the most part, and everything is red. Blood yeah. red, that's like right. like a spaghetti sauce. That's you know? right. That's right. And that's what people want. Forget about the the, the, the artistic risotto. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to give you lots of ragu style spaghetti sauce. And boy, Steve, I know you don't drink coffee, but man, used to that used to. that espresso machine they had was uh-huh. one of the most beautiful works of art I've ever <laughs> seen. I mean, you're you, a big coffee drink. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love coffee. It's in my top five favorite things about existence. Um, and that, you guys, I mean... Oh, do you have so much energy? If you, the, the, the listening audience, watch this movie, take note of, it, of their espresso machine. Because it is, if I could have this in my life, I could die a happy man. I mean, it is just the most beautiful looking work of art <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, it just looks like it makes the most amazing coffee. I'm sure All it right. does. You talk, this movie... Well, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to say, um, you hear you hear these things, uh, uh, this phrase, labor of love. Yeah. And I've seen that applied to so many mediocre movies of people who, who really wanted to make a movie, but they just didn't really have the talent. Yeah. You know? Well, good yeah. for them, you know, yeah. all, from, from Ed Wood to, uh, to yeah. higher. This is a labor of love Absolutely. by somebody who could execute it. Absolutely. Look, if once again, if I could only make one movie in my life and I made this one, mm-hmm. I'd be very proud. Yeah. I'd be very proud to have made this movie. I think this movie... There are years recently in America where this would have been the best movie made in America, period. I mean, what was last year? What was the best movie come out of 2019? Oh, there weren't any. So, What about 2019? <laughs> 2019, that's pre-pandemic. Oh, my gosh. Well, you, you, you liked— um, That's the year Green Book won, right? No, no. Um, was it yeah. Parasite? 
I think it's Parasite one in 2019. I think this movie's better than Parasite. And I like Parasite. I, I think... Oh, uh, as far as subtlety goes, there's no I question. I just think it's a better movie. I like the first half of Parasite, but... Uh, and and they and they both cast a uh, kind of kind of a, a jaundiced eye on uh, capitalism, but uh, yeah, uh, or unfe- unfeathered, un- untethered. I don't know. Unfettered. Un- unfettered. Thank you. Unfettered. unfettered. Yeah. I, I, untethered also would have worked. <laughs> untethered capitalism. Um, but yeah, I like this money, this movie a lot better than uh, Parasite. I have problems not with what Parasite's trying to say, but how it says it literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't want to get into any. All I'll say is this: the dialogue in Parasite. I don't know if it's a translation issue Mm -hmm. is very on the nose. I mean, people say things like they are very rich. Let's trick them. Like just like that. Oh, too, too explicit. Yeah. Yeah, You're right. It probably is a uh, translation. And I wonder if it's in the translation or if it's something about maybe Korean cinema Mm -hmm. where like dialogue is not as important as everything else. Mm -hmm. Cause in America dialogue is so important. Sometimes it's too important. Often. Well, and any, any Aaron Sorkin movie will. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. Like sometimes you can overwrite things, but sometimes mm-hmm. you can underwrite things. Um, yeah. And I felt that Parasite was, the dialogue was just really on the nose and flat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had problems with that because it's hard to build character. Like literally there are times where it was like, people like, he smells very bad. <laughs> like just like weird dialogue. So yeah, the point is, I think Big Night is good enough that there would have been years in America in the last decade where Big Night would have been the best movie of that year. That's how good it is. And if you could do that in your life, I mean, mm-hmm. you've accomplished a great deal. All right, Steve, got any questions for me regarding this film? One question. I don't know why I ask these, uh, come up with these questions because they're, they're so obvious. Did, did, did Shalhoub and Tucci convince you that they were chefs? Did they feel comfortable doing, you know, hacking up the, the, the carrots and, and, and uh, you know, uh, flipping the eggs at the end? Without question. And the most convincing part is the omelet at the end. Which yes. is funny because it's not the chef brother, but if Stanley Tucci, yeah, he's so casual about how he cracks the egg, yeah. how he makes the egg, right? And if Stanley Tucci's character is this good, uh-huh. then you can only imagine yeah. how Tony, how good Tony <laughs> Shalhoub's character is. So yes, they they completely convinced me that they're chefs. Another question: A major studio wanted to release this movie, yeah, but with a reshot ending, okay, yeah. <laughs> because they weren't willing to to go out on a, a limb and release this wide. Uh, without some sort of something that explicitly wraps it up, this the ending of this movie. I don't really want to give it away. It is, does. It actually does. Is it, the one they included the reshot one? No, they okay, didn't. They what, re- so what's Stucci the reshot and Campbell one? refused to do it. My question was, were they right to do it? Well, I want to know what the other one is. I, I don't. That I don't know. Oh, you don't. But know. But you can bet. Um, either uh, you know, uh, uh, he says goodbye to him Primo on the boat, goes to, and, and the other guy goes to work, and yeah, they're yeah, happy, yeah. and you know. Yeah. Um, no, they had to end it the way they did. I love the way they ended it. Yeah. I loved Look, the ending there, here. At one point, Primo says um, that basically knowing God is like the, the bread of angels, something like that. And how does the movie end? They're sharing bread. Yeah. I mean, the point is that like, pre, first of all, Secundo does something he hasn't done before, which is he takes care of other people, really takes care of them. He thinks he's taking care of them in the movie, but he's not. He's taking care of himself. And finally, <laughs> he's like, you know what? I'm going to do the most basic thing to take care of someone. I'm going to cook for them. He cooks for his waiter. He cooks for his brother. And they share a meal. And they forgive each other over the meal. I mean, mm. this is the point. It's of, wordless, too, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, wordless. This is the point about the power of food, mm. is that it literally can bring people together. It's at the end of the day where, where disagreements happen and forgiveness is also made. You know what I mean? It happens over meals. Um, I just thought of another question. Yeah. Both of these movies, I think, 
would have made fantastic silent movies. Which one would have suffered more as a silent movie? Big Night would have suffered more. I think so. Yeah, I think I think Night of even though you know it's funny, Night of the Hunter is so funny. Like I say, it's like a Coen Brothers movie. The mm-hmm. script is so amazing, but I think it could get its point across more than Big Night in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Mitchum has some pretty pithy things to say. Yeah, I and, don't want to give I don't want to give away the dialogue. Uh-huh. I'd rather give away the dialogue of Big Night uh-huh. than of Night of the Hunter. Uh-huh. But I think Night of the Hunter would be the stronger silent movie right there there are actually a few lines that i could have done without with um uh, mother cooper saying you know i'm 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 strong i'm I'm a leaf with many branches and i and i'm like i said i could could have i could have done without where should i hide the money in the barn no the look there (laughs) i could have done without that right but um but some of the some of the dialogue is really important for the mitchum character to say yeah and that, that that cards couldn't have handled yeah um, I would think that the Big Night might um, be a better off, uh, might be better off as a, as a silent movie. Yeah, because it's all about you know th- these these side glances, Shalhoub's glare, yeah, you know, right, right. and 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 uh, 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 Primo's covetousness, you know. Uh, you know how we just did an episode on Crimes of the Academy. Uh-huh, Is yeah. it a crime that this movie wasn't nominated for anything that year? I'm gonna look up 1996 it's, Academy Awards. It, it was not nominated it. for. It wasn't. Can nominated. you? I know it wasn't, but can you yeah. beat me too in terms of like what were the movies that year? Uh, the English Patient won, and uh, my eyes rolled because I didn't even like The English Patient. So it's got Babe, which is great. Babe um, was what? Babe is a, a movie from that year. I thought that was 95. I'm looking at 1990, the 68th. Oh. It no, was look in at, 19... Yeah, yeah, sorry. We, right, know, right. we gotta look at the next year, the 1997 Academy right, right, Awards. Right, 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 um, Let's look at 1997 Academy Awards. Yeah, for, for 1996. The only one I can think of is The English Patient. I remember how much I disliked yeah, it. Yeah, that movie... You know why my dad doesn't like that movie? Um, because he says that it basically excused him from working with the Nazis. Yeah, being a map maker for the Nazis, but it's okay because you loved uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, who was pretty much uh, was pretty uh, a great love object, but still. So Fargo's in there, um, but so is, like, Emma, which I think is a freaking... So, so Jerry Maguire's Secrets and Lies, Shine. This movie's better than Shine. It's better than Secrets and Lies. Secrets and Lies is pretty good. It's not better than Fargo. I'd argue it's Did not... Did you say Emma? No, no, that was for something else. Oh. And it's not better than uh, Jerry Maguire. So. I thought Emma should have been nominated that year. Really? I love The Paltrow Emma. I loved Emma, and she was so good in that. Okay, have you got any other questions for me? Uh, no, that, that, that's... Because I got one for you. Okay. Bring it on! You're going to love me for this question. You're going to be very happy that I asked this, because okay. it's really pandering to you. <laughs> but I can't help but notice good. it. Scarlett Johansson took a lot of flack... When she agreed to play a role as an Asian person uh, in, for, in a movie called Ghost in the Shell, which is based off of an anime, um, she defended herself by saying, and it may not have even been for this movie, it might have been for another movie in which she was going to play a man or something, Yeah, or she was going to play transgender. But I think she backed out of it. Yeah, she ultimately. did, but she took flack because she said, I'm an actress. The point is I play things that aren't me. And everyone, you know, now everyone's going after, you know, you can't play, I mean, hell, you know, uh, there's an actress on a show on Netflix I like called Big Mouth. She's a white woman, and she's playing a black, a young black girl. She's doing nothing stereotypical whatsoever. There's nothing about that character that's offensive. But she said because she's not black, she's no longer going to play the role, which I find... Was it an animated show? Animated show, which I find insane, right? I agree. Um, so here's my question. We are going after every 
person who is specifically white, by the way, and I'm not like, oh, white people are so like maligned and picked on. That's not my thing. Yeah, that's my thing. But my point is, my point is this. Why is Tony Shalhoub allowed to play every single race on the planet? All right, let me let me tell you who he's played. Antonio Scarpacci, the Italian from Wings. Right. He has played numerous uh, Muslim characters, one specifically in that movie with Denzel Washington, which isn't half bad. Siege. The Siege. The Siege. Yeah. He plays a Jew, a really... And I've, I've talked about it. If, if you guys don't know, I think the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is indicative of the anti-Semitism in America because we are so quick to condemn any form of stereotypical, you know, uh, um, uh, portrayal of a group of people. And yet we all love, except for me, uh, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is a bunch of goys, a bunch of non-Jewish actors <laughs> uh, playing really stereotypical Jewish parts. I I'm going to find I'm going to find a Jewish uh, bloodline. I that, swear, because I, I, a, I have to admit, that I is like a that show. Terrible anti-Semitic show uh. presenting the worst stereotypical tropes about Jews. He plays a Jew in that. I mean, this guy plays everything. You need a Muslim, you got him. You need an Italian, you got him. You need a Jew, you got him. Right. And what is he? What is his defense? He's really good. How dare he? No, that's not he, his defense. That's <laughs> yes, not, it is. No, you know what his defense is? <laughs> People are so racist in America and so uh-huh. stupid. So like average John Q liberal, right? Uh-huh. You know what? You know why they let him get away with it? Because he looks like those people. That's why. Wait a minute. Has he stated that explicitly? No. no. My point oh, is, that's what it's not saying. why. It's not his defense. It's why is he? Why does he get away with it where other people can't? Well, the real defense is because he's a really good actor. Yes. And yes, he does. It wouldn't right. work. It, I, I admit. I admit it. It would not work. Uh. uh Mel Gibson doing those things. I admit that. But that's my point. Is it any worse for Scarlett Johansson to play an Asian character than it is for Tony Shalhoub, who is Lebanese, right, to play a Jewish character who's not Lebanese or an Italian character? Why is it any better? In my opinion, which is, you know, isn't going to be very politically popular. If you can bring a role off plausibly and effectively, yeah. then you are qualified. I, agree. I don't care if you're a homosexual uh, playing a straight person; yeah. you get to play the straight person. Absolutely. Uh, I don't. I don't care. Uh, you know, if if you're you know Tony Shalhoub, yeah, you can play a wasp if you yeah. want to. Yeah, you can play an Italian if you're really good. Yeah. I I I, I, I like the question. I, I do appreciate with, the question. I couldn't agree with you more. It's not like that guy from. Uh, that movie with Matthew McConaughey that we did, the Guy Ritchie movie. Right. Remember that oh. guy who played the Jew and he really, his performance right. was offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like that. But here's my point. Here's the point I want to make about this. Right. It's not just that white people aren't allowed to play people of other races, but the people who would criticize a white person for playing an Asian person at the same time would say Tony Shalhoub's allowed to play a race he's not because he looks like that race. And that right. is racist. Well, you see what I'm saying? Right. That idea that, well, if, can you imagine someone saying, well, he looks like a Muslim? And that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing with Tony Shalhoub when they let him mm-hmm. play all these different parts. The white people aren't saying, well, he's a great actor. He's a better actor than Scarlett Johansson, which I'm, not, by the way, not even saying he is. I think she's a wonderful actress. But the point is, they're excusing it uh-huh. based on the way he looks. That's what I find to be uh, tragically hilarious, which mm-hmm. is that Scarlett Johansson doesn't look Asian, therefore she can't play Asian. But but imagine asking one of these people, say, hey, does Tony Shalhoub look like a Jew? Sure. What about him looks Jewish? 
You see what I'm saying? Mm. Get them going down that rabbit hole. Get them to start describing <laughs> how how different races and religions of people look. And then you'll find the, the out. The minute the phrase olive-skinned uh, exactly. boy, I think you have a blow Or they'll be and like, you have well, somebody arrested. they'll be like, maybe his nose, or he's kind of swarthy. Yeah, you see what you're I'm gonna, saying? Like, yeah, it's, it, it ends the conversation. Point. That's they, a good point. That they're is a good racist. Point. Like, they, they don't know what they're talking about. It's just only certain, it's all virtue signaling nonsense. And that's why you've got to let. Here, here. As long as, look, as long as Scarlett Johansson's not taping her eyelids you know like you know uh in some awful racist depiction you know what I mean? as long as like, she, like mickey rooney did in or like uh, a disney cartoon in yeah. world war ii about japanese people you see right. what i'm saying like right. like we, we've got to have some grace and, and allow actors to act and the point is if you're going to criticize somebody like scarlett johansson you can't say tony shalhoub's a lot to do it because he looks muslim because he looks jewish because that in itself is racist we mm-hmm. can't say that shit you know what i mean i, I think if if you look if, well, it doesn't matter if you can like I, I wouldn't Forget, hire look, if you can pull it I off. wouldn't hire Robert Redford in 1970s yeah. to play one of these brothers I wouldn't right? hire Robert Redford to play Genghis Khan no no no, no. But, but right you know yeah you have to concede some form of plausibility sure okay yeah. physical plausibility Mickey Rooney in in um what's that Audrey Hepburn movie um uh, I don't know you know, uh, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, Breakfast okay. at Tiffany's, and he he played oh, he plays an a really, Asian, like, and they, they did something with his eyes. Of Asians. Yeah, yeah. But you have yeah, to assume that was that Scarlett Johansson would not have done that. No, not no, you're, you're especially right. not you're in right. this day and age. Yeah. But I just, I just find it funny. It's hypocritical. That we're, it's hypocritical, yes. and, and it's worse than that. He's allowed to do it based on actual racist concepts, precepts, mm-hmm. which are that he looks like these people. You ask someone who has a problem with Scarlett Johansson doing it, why he's allowed to do it, and they'll say it's because he looks Jewish or he looks Muslim, and that is racist, especially if you ask them what mm-hmm. a Jewish or Muslim person looks like. To clarify, if you were the casting director yeah. on this movie, would you hire Tony Shalhoub Absolutely. For that role? Why? Because he's a great actor. Because he's a great actor, okay. Yeah. Now, if he had blonde hair and blue eyes... I'd, I'd hire you, him. If he can pull it off, I'd hire him. Uh, like like taking... Have uh, contact no. lenses and... Do nothing. They're blonde-haired, blue-eyed Italians. Yeah, but... Uh, they're there. I think they're... Uh, let's say they're... Sus- Augustus! From Sus- let's say... Let's say Sus- uh, Sicilian. Yeah. Okay, let's say they're Sicilian. You have even fewer uh, people. I think you got to go with whoever's best for the role, period. The whole package. Whoever's mm-hmm. best for the role. And if, if Tony Shalhoub was light years behind Robert Redford, I'd go with Robert Redford. And you just pull it off. You just do it. And then maybe I'd be criticizing I it as unbelievable. <laughs> well, that's the problem. Yeah. You would be ridiculed because we have had that. We, we've had mm-hmm. people, um, you know, uh, I don't know, John Wayne playing somebody yeah. who was 20 years yeah. younger than yeah. he was. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, Does anybody have a head. problem that Greeks played Latinos and Spanish speaking people? in West Side Story. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Exactly. Uh, they, they don't. Exactly. But they would now. They, even, they might now. They're not Anthony Quinn to the same people. Anthony Quinn played every race yeah. under the sun. Yeah. My point is... And I say good for him. As long as you're slightly ethnic, then right. you can play anyone else who's slightly ethnic. You can play everyone from you know a what, wasp yeah. to, you know, um, you, you, know, know, you know, what the logic is? You know what the logic is amongst uh, these virtue signaling liberals? What's that? All ethnic people look alike. That's Ooh, what they're saying. That's a good point. They're saying all ethnic people look alike. All right, uh, let's do quotes, and then we're going to go. Okay. And then we'll do bad pitches, of course. Steve, okay. what are your quotes? <laughs> but we got... I'm not usually the one who gets political there, but I just had to bring it up because I think it's funny. I, I think you Tony have Shalhoub. a point. Uh, I totally understand. Uh, this is by the Ian Holm character, the rival uh, restaurant restaurateur. How can you not love this quote? Yeah. 
um, he's he's yelling at uh, I think it's uh, uh, Sakando. Yeah. Bite your teeth into the ass of life and drag it to you. <laughs> How could you not love that? I, you know, I love that quote. So mine was from Isabella Rossellini, oddly enough. Okay. Actually, you know what? Gosh, now I don't know if it was... I think it was Mini Driver, actually. Excuse me. Okay. It's when Mini Driver just puked because she's drunk, I guess. And she says to Isabella Rossellini, she's complaining about Stanley Tucci, who's her boyfriend and also Isabella Rossellini's lover. But, but At dr- that point, she doesn't know point, that. She doesn't know. She goes, she goes these men... They make you think they have secrets to tell, but they have nothing to tell. <laughs> <laughs> so the secret is we're just as transparent yeah, yeah. as we... We're we, just vapid. They, they make it seem like they're deep or whatever, but they got nothing there. All right, Steve, bad That's pitches. Great. Bad pitches. Chef crosses, crossed with America, America. This is a bad pitch because nobody's ever heard of America, America, except yeah. us when we did this on the podcast. You know, I kind of wish I had <laughs> used America, America now. The reason I think, the reason I think your pitch is a bad pitch is because neither of those movies made money. Oh, that's that. You're right. Well, I, I, you're I supposed can see to that, make yes. a pitch that would appeal to the studio. Yes. Uh, so here was my pitch. I couldn't find any movie centered around food that made a lot of money. I deliberately <laughs> avoided chef movies. Okay. All right. Because I thought it was too on the nose. So here was mine. I said, I said, uh, the odd couple meets the <laughs> agony and the ecstasy. <laughs> well, that's, that's you know, I'm, do you guys I know, know about the agony, agony, yeah. ag- the, the I've agony and the I've never seen it. But the point is, it's about uh-huh. when Michelangelo right. had to basically apologize to the Pope. And for all of his artwork, he right. went to war with the Pope to uh, finish he, the Sistine Chapel. He Chaplain. lost that war. He had to yeah. apologize to the Pope. He had to tell the Pope that. You well, know, thanks for blowing the ending. <laughs> yeah, he had to tell the Pope that all of his artwork was uh, sacrilegious, basically. Wow. But the point is about the artist and the sacrifice mm-hmm. and virtue and all that. Uh, right. So yeah. Anyways, any final thoughts on today's episode? Um, I, I liked I liked Big Night. I liked its look. And yeah. I liked its pace. And you're absolutely right. You nailed it when you said it was a grown-up pace. Yeah. If you're an adult, watch Big Night. There you go. Uh, good episode. Next week, courtroom movies. Courtroom. Su- court- Can't wait for it. I love courtroom dramas. I do, too. They're a <laughs> very, they have a very special place in my heart. All right, Steve, that was a good one. I'll talk to you later. Bye.